The following episode of Andrew Talks to Chefs originally aired on our former host network. We are now a fully independent podcast. For current and past episodes, Andrew's blog, contact information, and more, please visit andrewtalkstochefs.com. To support us, please visit patreon.com slash andrewtalkstochefs. Enjoy the show. Today's program was brought to you by El Cortez. Stop in for tacos and tiki drinks at 17 Ingraham Street in Bushwick or visit them online at elcortezbushwick.com. Hi, and welcome to Opening Soon on Heritage Radio Network. We are your hosts, Jenny Goodman and Alex McCreary. Opening Soon is a weekly show that will walk you through the steps of opening a restaurant through conversations with some of the world's greatest chefs, restaurateurs, and the vendors that help take their business from just an idea to opening soon. Jenny and I have been in the hospitality business for over 25 years. I've been fortunate enough to be part of opening one restaurant that still stands today and humbled enough to have owned one restaurant named Goods that lasted less than six months. When launching Goods, we failed to create a business plan before jumping in. We didn't bother with a partnership agreement and we missed some major components of our income statement. Our experience with Goods is a big reason we feel we're the ones that can ask the questions. Basically, we need answers. Aside from our own first-hand experience inside restaurants, including one pretty epic fail, we are currently the founders of Tillit NYC, a hospitality workwear brand that has proudly outfitted over 4,000 restaurants and counting since launching our business in 2012. We are so fortunate to witness many restaurants come to life. Being part of that journey is one of the best parts of our job, and we want to share that feeling and all those lessons that can be learned with all of you. Our goal is that this podcast will help bridge the gap between the teacher and the student, help alleviate some of the risk when you're opening your restaurant, and offer you some lessons that you might have been looking for when building your business plan. So the first 12-episode season will sequentially take you through the steps of your business plan, from choosing your partners to nailing design and to getting those doors actually open. We will be picking the brains of industry leaders, including Chef Missy Robbins, Camilla Marcus, and Steven Satterfield, just to name a few. So if you're in the process of building a business plan, just starting culinary school, improving or expanding in your current business, or just fascinated by what it takes to get the restaurant open, we hope this podcast will entertain, educate, and inspire you on your journey from idea to opening soon. Follow the journey on Heritage Radio and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at WeAreOpeningSoon and at TillItNYC. Hey, gang, just a reminder, I will be at the L.A. Chef Conference this coming Monday, May 20th in Santa Monica, California. I will be conducting a panel based on my book, Chef's Drugs and Rock and Roll, featuring five major characters from the book live in conversation. It's just one of dozens of panels, cooking demonstrations, and industry talks happening that day. You can get tickets via the link in the bio of our Instagram account, which is at Chef Podcast, or visit tokeland.com slash appearances. I'm Massimo Bottura. Hi, this is Amanda Cohen. This is David Kinch. This is Mike Anthony. This is Huni Kim. This is Amanda Freitag. This is Richard Blaze. This is Paul Kahn. This is Curtis Stein. This is Stephen Harris. This is Missy Robbins. And you're listening to Andrew Talks to Chefs on Heritage Radio. Well, food grounds me. Mm-hmm. I would say, you know, when I'm angry, I cook. When I'm sad, I cook. When I'm really happy, I cook. You know, it's that thing that brings me back. Mm-hmm. Um, and you'll read it in the book in one chapter. I was lost. And then 
I just needed to cook something yeah. to kind of bring me back. And maybe it, it's a psychological thing or a subconscious thing that brings me back to being a child mm-hmm. and playing, you know, because that's how I used to play. Those are my chores. Yeah. Because my mother was a chef. Right. And I had to help out in order to run the business. So um, food is everything to me. Mm-hmm. You know, food saved me. Food, um, food keeps me company. <laughs> Not in a way that I, I find solace in you know, gorging myself, but I find it in creating. It's a creative outlet for me in many different ways. And even when I'm doing the same recipe I've done a million times, it's still that that moment of clarity I have when it all comes out and you have this labor of love Mm -hmm. um, at the end of it. That is Chef Kwame Anwache of Kith and Kin Restaurant in Washington, D.C., and the author of the new book, Notes from a Young Black Chef. That sort of idea of, of being, being exactly who we are and, you know, also I say the mission of Willa Jane is to secure the future. And mm. that's, that's the brand, that's the business, that's the guests, that's the, sta- like the staff, um, the farmers, everybody that we do. Like, how do we secure a future for everyone? And everything from the way we source food to the way that we hire people mm-hmm. to, um, you know, the experience and the... The inclusion we try to promote as a business, as Mm -hmm. a brand, um, everything is based in that thought. And that is Chef Kelly Fields of Willa Jean Restaurant in New Orleans, Louisiana. Both won Beard Awards last week in Chicago, and they are our guests on this special doubleheader episode of Andrew Talks to Chefs. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Andrew Talks to Chefs. I am your host, Andrew Friedman, and this is getting to be a regular thing. I'm here with Caitlin Friedman. Hi, Caitlin. Hi, Andrew. At your request, Caitlin, we are doing this not at um, late at night, nor are we doing this early in the morning. We are doing this at a civilized hour. The sun has not yet set on our little hamlet of Hastings on Hudson. This is the best day ever. (laughs) Um, I'm so excited for this show. You know, these are two interviews I did a little while ago. Uh, The two people I interviewed just won James Beard Awards in Chicago last week. Kwame Anwache, who has this book that everyone's talking about, Notes from a Young Black Chef. He won Rising Star Chef at the Beards. And Kelly Fields won Outstanding pastry chef. She is with Willa Jean Restaurant in New Orleans. Uh, there were interviews I did a little while back. You know, we've had quite a backlog. Uh, we had our between season hiatus. I've been to a few festivals which take precedence all the time. And uh, lo and behold, I realized I was sitting on interviews with two big winners from last week's awards. That you, were, that you attended. That I attended. It was my first time attending the Beard Awards since they moved from New York to Chicago. I think it's been five years since it moved. Um, I had a great time. I, I got to put on a tux. You stayed up all night. I was out very late. I could have... I, I, I stayed with a friend. My original plan was to just go in. At the last minute, uh, my new buddies at San Pellegrino had an extra ticket. and They invited me to come with them. And I had a plan, which was to save money. I would fly in Monday afternoon, go to the awards, stay out all night, and go directly to the airport and fly home, like on the first flight in the morning. I could have done that. I could have. 
I could never have done that. I could have. Well, I mean, I could have in that by the time I got home and went to bed, I could have been... On a flight. Well, at the gate. 100%. 100%. I always say it's easier to stay up than it is to wake up. So no. the morning was painful. It took me a day to recover, but you know, no worse for wear. I'm back. Um, the awards were fun. Remember when we used to go every year? I was thinking about that the other day because I hadn't been in like, I don't know, 15 years, but we went for a, a good long run. Yeah. Yeah. It was fun. Yeah, I've come, I've gone in and out of it. You know, I, I've, I started going again several years ago in New York and then... You know, they split off the media awards, which still happen in New York. The the Chef and Restaurant Awards are in Chicago. It's hard for me to justify the the time, the expense, because I'm not a, a chef, although, you know, I like to spend my time with them, but I'm not really. I'm a, I'm on the media side. Uh, it's just hard to justify all that. But um, I got to say, it was a great evening. I got to see a lot of people I hadn't seen in a while. Um, you know, it is a glittering, star-studded culinary evening. So it was fun. Um, you know, awards in general, I'm very ambivalent about, as you know. Um, some people ask me why this show wasn't nominated for one of the media awards for podcasting. It's because I don't submit it. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually one of those people that tells you that you should submit it, though. Yeah, I mean, for me, I, I just love the show. And yeah. I don't want to, I feel great about it. And I don't want that to be judged. Miti- no, not even that. I just don't want it to be mitigated by whether or not I get nominated and then whether or not I win. It's just a personal choice. Uh, but I'm, I'm totally content. I'm very happy when friends win. You know, I did go to the, uh, at the last minute, I had to miss the media awards, but I did go to the after party that night. And I'm sincerely happy. A lot of my friends won awards. And um, taste.com, where I've been doing a lot of writing, had a big night. Um, and I'm always happy for people. I just, for me, it's, you know, unless I'm with a publisher who nominates my books, which they all do, um, I just kind of stay out of it and just kind of go and enjoy the parties. All right. Well, that sounds very healthy. So, Caitlin, before we jump in on these interviews, there has been uh, some news in the week. Uh, one is this Arizona Gate. Did you follow Arizona Gate? I'd like to say I did, but I've been kind of a radio. <laughs> Well, <laughs> I just have turned off all media. all news. Yeah, it was kind of just getting me down, and I'm really busy, and I just have enough worries. I don't need more. Well, I don't know if people followed it. You know, Pete Wells at the New York Times wrote a piece about how Danny Bowen of Mission Chinese is doing some kind of a promotion with Arizona iced tea, and he's using the iced tea in a couple of his dishes. And I think it's an interesting subject the way chefs are having to sort of and restaurateurs are, you know, having to start to sell their space, you know, space on their menu. A lot of places now that only serve dinner are renting out their spaces, uh, co-working spaces during the day. You know, there's a couple of companies now that will set you up at a restaurant, you know, then they serve coffee and water and you can go in there and work during the day. It's, you know, revenue streams. But do you think this is true just in New York or do you think this is happening in other markets? I'm just I, wondering I, how, what the impact of the, just the rental market and everything else. Uh, I mean, I think, I, I'm no, I can't speak to a lot of the smaller markets. I think any big city right now is hurting. If, you're in a, if you have a restaurant in, uh, you know, New York, Los Angeles, uh, San Francisco, Chicago, there's a ton of competition. Uh, the industry is trying to evolve and do good things and treat employees better and not ask people to work brutal hours and not employ, you know, interns for no money. And all of those things bring the cost of, of running a restaurant up 
And the customer base generally will gripe, and sometimes the media will too, if people raise their menu items, you know, by anything. Uh, so I think, I actually think there's going to be a lot more of what it was that got written about in that article. Uh, what a lot of people, including me, had an issue wa- with was that it seemed highly selective to single out this one chef, who, by the way, I, I've met once or twice, not a friend of mine or even an acquaintance of mine by any stretch. Um, don't have anything against them, but we're not, you know, intimates. Um, uh, you know, uh, it seemed very selective to kind of beat up on him for putting a product that happens to have high fructose corn syrup. And now as parents, you and I hate that stuff. But, you know, people have been naming uh, uh, fancy chocolates on their menu forever. People name prestigious farms on their menu. Um, on the spirit side, I mean... Cocktails with brand name liquors, you know, uh, table stand signage, uh, neon signs in windows. So it's really nothing new. It seemed, as often as the case with this particular critic, it seemed very personal, very selective. I think it sounds snobby. I think it's that's the, a word a lot of people yeah, are throwing around. Yeah, I think around. it's the product. It's not Verona chocolate. It is a, a mass product and a yeah. mass brand, and he has an issue with it. Well, yes, yeah. Anyway. As is often the case, I had an issue, but um, yeah, I just, it seemed like it was singling someone out, and I also think it's uh, ignoring the fact that I think we're going to be seeing a lot more of this. You know, I made a comment somewhere, I got into an exchange with some people on Instagram about it, and I said, you know, I could see, as I, as I say more and more, Caitlin, the theme of my philosophy about this industry is things change, and do, do people think it's not possible you know how sports centers now are like the Staples Sports Center or the whatever sports arena? You know, the, I can't think of any else right now, but there's a million of them. American Airlines Arena. Does anyone think it's not conceivable that one day we're going to see the so-and-so, you know, I don't want to name a rest, you know, per se, the so-and-so, per se, by blah, blah, blah. And there'll be like a name after it. I don't think Thomas would probably ever do that. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of chefs might be, find themselves in a position where they're going to have to do stuff like that to stay alive, you know? And is it really that bad? Or attach themselves to a brand that Something. will help spread the, the Something. word. Something. Less, so it's less financial and it's more about marketing. Anyway, I heard from a lot of chefs privately. I sympathize. I, I can see why people don't want to see brand names on a menu, but I, you know, unless you're ready to embrace higher prices um, that, that elevate with some kind of regularity, I think that's something that's going to happen. I also want to apologize, everybody. When I heard the show back last week, my allergies were disgusting. <laughs> have you listened back, Caitlin? I haven't. Uh, you know, these mics are really sensitive, which is usually a good thing, but it's really gross. It's. I felt very unattractive and pathetic listening back to it. You I were, will, Okay, but you were dying. I was dying, but I will just say, if that ever happens again, I will take a Claritin. I will allow an hour for it to kick in, and then I will record the opening. So you all will <laughs> never have to hear... The, 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 the swamp thing that I had become for last week's show. That was terrible, Caitlin. <laughs> All right. I shouldn't laugh, but it is kind of funny. So I agonized over this. You know, we have t- these two interviews. I've had them both for a while. I didn't know what to do about sequencing. Like, who do I put first? Alphabetical order. I went in the order of uh, the awards, uh, how the awards were given out. Oh, okay. That's what I did. I think that was a good call. Um, but I, I've made concessions in other ways. So Kwame's interview is going to go first. Um, but like on the picture that we use on the 
show page and on Instagram and whatnot. I have the picture of me and Kelly above the picture of me and Kwame. Jeez, like you really that. thought about this. I did. Well, it's like, you know, a lot of times when I used to be in the film business, if you were negotiating credits, yeah. sometimes it would be, a, you know, like one producer's name would go first before the title, and then the other producer's name would go first, you know, at the end of the credit roll. I'm dealing with this right now. Right? This yes, happens. That's this a real happens. thing. And people get very, very upset. Yeah. I don't think either of these guests would care. They're both really great. So, okay. So, first off, Kwame Anwachi, as I said, is the chef of Kith Kin in D.C. He also has this book out called Notes from a Young Black Chef. It is a deeply personal book. Uh, it's about his life to date. He is a young black chef. As I mentioned to him in the interview, I almost think the chef part is is the least of it. Uh, it's, it's, it's his life story. You know, a lot of it's about being young and black in this country and about his own personal journey and about his own discovery of what he wanted to do. Uh, I have to say that, um, well, first of all, I have to say the book is co-authored by Joshua David Stein, who, as you know, Caitlin, I'm very fond of. I think he's a great guy. I don't know him as well as I would like to, um, but I met Kwame at the Philadelphia chef conference just by chance. Josh and I were talking in a doorway and Kwame kind of blew through the doorway. I think he was carrying a box of stuff. And Josh introduced us, and I knew about the book, and, and I made a point of getting contact info. And, and that's how the interview came to be. Um, but I also do need to say that the, the book, you know, for, for some things that consume, you know, a handful of pages out of several hundred, where uh, Kwame uh, details um, uh, some exchanges that, that to him were racially tinged, or at the very least racially insensitive, um, in some prominent restaurants. Uh, I will say that when I told people I had done an interview with him, there are some people I know who were surprised. Seems like a strong reaction to me, but they were. Um, uh, there are people involved in the restaurants that he talks about, and I'm talking about Per Se and 11 Madison Park, uh, you know, where I know people and, and have for years. Uh, but you know, uh, this is his story. Um, I, we did discuss one of the, one of the two incidents that are in the book is something, uh, that was very much kind of, uh, at this point, a he said, he said, you know, the, the chef that he talks about has responded on the record. Uh, I didn't get into that. I, I didn't really see the, the value I could add to that. Uh, the other exchange that he describes in the book was something that, I found very striking and I wanted to explore it in some detail with him. I had some of my own experiences that I wanted to bring to the conversation. I actually think we had a very productive conversation about that. Um, so for anyone who's wondering about those two stories, that's where I net out on it. I think it's a terrific book. Others do as well. And uh, anyway, for any of the, anybody who has objections to the book or to those stories. I, I think we both did a responsible job. When I say us both, I think Kwame and I did a responsible job of exploring them. Does that sound all right, Caitlin? That sounds great. I should also mention that there is an emotional moment toward the end of this interview. Um, I debated taking it out. Um, Kwame repeatedly said to me it was okay. Uh, nevertheless, it does feel very intimate, um, but I'm leaving it in. I think it shows a side of him that's uh, very personal and uh, shows how much something meant to him. And Kwame, if you're listening, I hope that you were okay with that decision. It seemed like you were in the moment. So um, I think that's all I'm going to say about it, Kate. So I'm now going to roll 
my interview with Kwame Anwache. We recorded it, by the way, at his publisher's offices, at the offices of Knopf in Midtown Manhattan. And here you go. You know, often when I sit down with someone who wrote a cookbook, we get to the cookbook eventually, but I mean, and this is a very biographical show, so I'm holding your biography. <laughs> I've read your biography. I kind of want to mainly talk about the book. Yeah, um, absolutely. What made you want to do it? I was approached to write a book. Okay. Um, I used to give speeches, um, motivational speeches in, you know, um, in the Bronx, in New York City, and all around. Yeah. I did one down downtown um, near the World Trade Center. It mm-hmm. was uh, called Bitten. It's a food mm-hmm. conference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And um, Nas invited me to do uh, a talk on just my life story. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did it. I just told my life story. And um, there was a literary agent in the crowd. And she was like, you need to have a book. And what was your initial reaction to that? How much is this going to cost me? <laughs> how much is it going to cost you? Yeah, not how much am I, I going to make? I didn't know anything about it. <laughs> right. This person walking up to me yeah, saying sure. I need to have a book. Yeah. I'm like, okay, yeah. what do you want from me? Right. Um, but no, uh, she explained the process to me and I yeah. wrote a proposal and shopped it around. And yeah. that's how I got into this building we're sitting in right now. Yeah, it's not too shabby. Mm-hmm. You eventually paired up with a collaborator. Did the, was the proposal and the initial conception of the book, was that you independently? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was. Mm-hmm. What was it like for you when you started putting it down on paper or on a, on a screen? Mm-hmm. And, and how long did it take you to arrive? Because, you know, the, there's a lot of... There's a lot of short words in the title of this book that are big words, right? Notes mm-hmm. from a young, that's important, black, mm-hmm. very important, chef. Any of those could be the spine of a, of a book about a young person, right? Mm-hmm. I, you know, if I'm honest, when I read the book, to me, this as, it's, as much as anything, it is about being a young black person today as it, is about, as it is about finding a, that you want to be a chef. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's what it felt like to me. Does that feel accurate to you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, the chef is the common thread. That's why it was so easy for me to write recipes. You know, mm-hmm. we actually had to take some out. But right. there's been, you know, the underlying theme of my life has revolved around food. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, you can put a, notes from a young black editor and notes from a young black window washer. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty sure the story um, you, you'd be able to relate to. So how long did it take you to kind of chisel away and figure out this is sort of the, you know, the arc of the story I want to tell? Well, the, you know, the, the groundwork for it was laid out um, way before, you know. So I, I used to do this pop-up restaurant um, competition, which you'll you read in the book, called Dinner Lab. And mm-hmm. I was able to really craft my narrative there because I had to give a speech before dinner. Yeah. So I would just tell the story of my life. And yeah. my menu was reflective of that as well. Mm-hmm. So that was already there, but there were so many things that I never talked about. You know, no one wants to hear the you know the bad parts about a story before they're about to eat dinner yeah you know so especially if the dinner was in part driven by exactly right you know so um so yeah i think when i got to write the book i was able to be honest and um let my guard down a little bit and i didn't i mean hey i got a chance to write a book so why not write my story you Mm -hmm. know it's like it's gonna be out there Mm -hmm. so I put it. I put it out there. And that, that's how it came out. You know, when I came in the room, I said to you, like having collaborated with people, mm-hmm. when when they decide to do something that 
requires, right, the topics we're talking about really require honesty. Mm-hmm. If it's not the time to sort of write a 200-page press release, yeah. right, or something that's exactly. driven, something that's like driven by marketing, exactly. right? Um, and it's because it shows. You can smell it, it's, mm-hmm. and it doesn't smell good, right? Yeah. And the flip side is when you feel like you're really getting, I mean, you tell some very frank stories. You tell stories about you, um, you know, you talk about, um, you know, you get in a fight, and then after that fight, what sort of, power that mm-hmm. gave you as you you felt it mm-hmm. palpably as you walked around the streets mm-hmm. a lot of people wouldn't be that honest about that feeling mm-hmm. right um was it a, were you always going to be that straightforward in the story was there anyone who tr- tr- friends family anybody who tried to talk you out of that anyone who was sort of maybe look at a draft and say you really you shouldn't do this Mm-mm. i didn't share with anyone until you didn't out yeah Really? Just your editor? Just my editor. I kept it within. I didn't want any outside influence. I wanted it to be... Because, you know, you already... I have enough voices in my head. I don't need anybody else telling <laughs> right. me anything. Yeah. But that also yeah. seems very confident to me. Um, yes and no. Because I've... I, I know when to ask for feedback and things like mm-hmm. that. You know, like... It's like when I'm creating a dish, right? I put it out to the world and I let people taste it and whether it's in my kitchen, mm-hmm. you know, I'm like, tell me what you think. And they're like, well, this is good, but it just needs some nuttiness and then we'll grate some cashews over it or something. And yeah. then it's like, okay, it's perfect. This is, this is different. You know, this is my life story. Yeah. I don't need anybody dictating what I shouldn't be doing. Right. Um, because I, like, seriously, I have enough voices in my head. Yeah. So I'm already at tug of war <laughs> inside. And I think most of us are. Yeah. I think when we're doing something as personal as, as, as a, you know, memoir, um, it needs to be as authentic to you as possible. Right. So do you, when you wrote this book, and I'll tell you where this question's coming from, mm-hmm. um, there's obviously a lot of talk going on right now in this country about race. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, I think a lot of us maybe thought things were moving in a good direction, and now it feels like things are moving backwards, mm-hmm. and then there's a lot of things, you know, because of body cams and, you know, police yeah. car cams and phone cameras, a lot of us are really seeing the proof of, you know, uh, some awful uh, mm-hmm. traditions that continue, right? Um, but I feel like as a result of that, I feel like a lot of us are becoming more kind of cordoned off from each other, than they certainly than they were when I was younger. And so I, I, look, I read a book like this, and I wonder if you had a particular audience in mind. Was it written, do you know what I'm saying? Was it written mm-hmm. for, uh, for, for younger black people than yourself? Is it written for a Caucasian like me to try mm-hmm. to understand the experience a little more? Was it written for the industry to get some of the things that you feel it's falling short at? Did you have a specific, uh, what would the word be, like a specific um, uh, constituency in mind or, uh, no. or audience it in was, mind? It's for everyone. You know, it's, it's, for everyone. it's not for just black chefs. It's not just for chefs. It's not just for black people. It's yeah. not for young people. Yeah. It's a story. I mean, you, you can pick out different stories within here, and I think they can be a book in itself. Yeah. You know, each chapter. Yeah. So I think there's uh, there's going to be something that, re- that you can relate to, mm-hmm. whether it's trying to do something that's a little bit out of your comfort zone. Yeah. You know, failing, getting back up and succeeding. Someone telling you that you can't do something. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, I am black, and there are moments in here that do um, probably uh, pertain to a, a black audience in the way that they have been there before. Mm-hmm. But I think that is a very narrow viewpoint if I was just to be 
let me write this only for African-Americans or for black people. Sure. It's, it's for everyone. Uh-huh. Um, and even if I am talking about something that relates to black people, it's just look at it through our lens really quickly, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And maybe you should think about when you're making these jokes around your black friends that mm-hmm. they didn't initiate the jokes or right. <laughs> when you're hiring or, yeah. um, you know, the way that you're talking to someone, mm-hmm. you know, or your staff, look around you, mm-hmm. you know, is the yeah. people that are, if the people in the room are of one race that are making decisions for everyone, yeah, something is wrong. Yes. Yeah. And that's what this book is really for. Mm-hmm. Did you, um, you know, one thing I think that's interesting reading it, um, and if it's not clear, I said this before we started rolling. I think the, I think the book's great. It happens to have been co-written by somebody who I consider a friend of mine. Mm-hmm. But um, I was really impressed at how much, I don't feel a co-writer here, which is a compliment to him mm-hmm. and to you. But it, I feel like it's your voice. I feel like it's your story. Um, uh, but, you know, also, and I, I think I would, this would be true of any demographic that somebody is writing from, you really show... Um, you know, I think a lot of times people of other demographics tend to see people other than themselves as, as monolithic, right? Mm-hmm. As, as they, you know, like they'll ask, it's really sad when it happens, but, you know, they'll, they'll go to a black friend or a Jewish friend and mm-hmm. say like, hey, how would a Jewish person feel about this? Exactly. Yeah. And it's like, but you really, in this book, you not only show, you spend considerable time in your childhood with a number of different um, types of individuals, populations, communities, mm-hmm. all of them more or less black communities or black households, or I mean, even your parents. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's, it's, I think, educational for a lot of people in that way, because it really does show the, the diversity that can exist within a community. Were Absolutely. you aware of that when you were writing it, that you were showing all these different, and you're this person as a young person, when you're still trying to figure out who you are, mm-hmm. spending considerable time, you know, there's all of a sudden you're in a situation where you're expected to, you know, defend yourself <laughs> physically. Yeah. You know, I think you even say something like, and let's just be clear, I had no idea how to fight, uh-huh. you know? Well, it was just my life's pattern, you know? Yeah. I, when I grew up, you know, my first two best friends were two Irish twins, you know, <laughs> then I got sent to Africa and all my friends were Africans and then yep. I came back and then my best friend was Jay Kwan, you know, mm-hmm. from the Bronx and, you know, that, it's just how my life played out. So like, I wasn't really aware, but I, I, do, I, 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 okay, I was aware that I was appealing to many different audiences just based off of my life experiences. Mm-hmm. You know, does that make sense? Totally, 100%. Yeah. yeah. So when you... But it wasn't purposeful. It was just... With writing, it's just it my life. It was just your life. Yeah. And this happens to just be like a benefit for anybody reading it. Exactly. That was very striking to me. It really was. Because it, it also, to be honest, it kept it... Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, just an innately interesting, mm-hmm. right? Because it wasn't just what you were going through internally. It was like, oh, here's a new... Yeah. Here's an, it's almost episodic. Yeah. You know? Exactly. Uh, like a like a like a you know, like a journey. Um, there's an element of that to it. Mm-hmm. Can we talk for a minute about food? There's a I don't want to give any I don't want to do any spoilers. The, okay. book's, the book's just out. But there is a very important moment where you're a little bit lost as a young person mm-hmm. and you cook a real uh, meal for the first time mm-hmm. in forever. You know the moment I'm talking. Mm-hmm. It's right at the yes. end of one of the chapters. Absolutely. Okay. 
Can you just talk for a moment about, and when this interview started, you talked about food as sort of a, a, a through line, right? Mm-hmm. Can, can, can you just say it to me as if the book didn't exist, say it to people who are listening? What has food meant for you and how, why was that such a constant uh, in your life and sort of almost like a, like a beacon in your life? Well, food grounds me, mm-hmm. I would say. You know, when I'm angry, I cook. When I'm sad, I cook. When I'm really happy, I cook. You know, it's that thing that brings me back. Mm-hmm. Um, and you'll read it in the book in one chapter I was lost and then I just needed to cook something yeah. to kind of bring me back and maybe it, it's a psychological thing or a subconscious thing that brings me back to being a child mm-hmm. and playing you know because that's how I used to play those were my chores yeah because my mother was a chef right and I had to help out in order to run the business so um, food is everything to me mm-hmm. you know food saved me food um Food keeps me company, <laughs> not in a way that I, I find solace in, you know, gorging myself, but yeah. I find it in creating. It's a creative outlet for me in many different ways. And even when I'm doing the same recipe I've done a million times, it's still that um, that moment of clarity I have when it all comes out and you have this labor of love mm-hmm. um, at the end of it. Does it exist for you? Because your food is, you talk about your, you know, it tells your story, mm-hmm. and you right? But... Is that almost an instinctual experience for you? In other words, when you are cooking, or does it take you out of your head? Mm-hmm. Does it, is, and, and if so, uh, is, there, is there almost a subconscious that's acting mm-hmm. when you're cooking? Because when you talk about telling a story, like at least like I'm a, I'm a full-time writer, that's very often like painful. Mm-hmm. I don't mean like it, I mean sometimes just emotionally painful, but it's, you know, it's difficult, it's tough, it's frustrating, it's... When you talk about cooking, and I've heard other chefs talk about it this way, mm-hmm. on the one hand, it's taking you out of your head, but on your other hand, you are doing something that's very personal, yeah. and, and you are making a statement with your food. Absolutely. It's cerebral, though, because you're in your head, mm-hmm. but in, you're in your head in another way. You're like, this needs to be seasoned perfectly. Let me just add a little bit more salt. Okay, let me add a little, little bit more lime juice. Okay, um, need some heat. Yeah. And I'm all my things that I was like worrying about is kind of like gone yeah. because I, I want to perfect this dish, whether I'm making blanched asparagus or I'm making roasted asparagus with sauce bernays. It's yeah. the same. I want to be, I, I want it to be perfect. You uh-huh. know, I want the emulsion to be perfect yeah. or I want the vegetables to be blanched perfectly, you know, and yeah. I'm intensely thinking about that yes. and nothing else. Right. And, so and that's that what is... cooking does for me. Because I, I don't have anything else that I love that much mm-hmm. um, besides my family. Mm-hmm. But um, something that I can really focus on is cooking that kind of takes me um, out of this outside world, out of the matrix. Out of the matrix. <laughs> I love that. So, uh, okay, again, this requ- I, I just so I'm, you know, I usually apologize to any guest if I'm ever going to ask them questions that pertain to sort of their demographic, their mm-hmm. race, their gender. Just shoot. It's but right. we're here with this book, it's, so it, yeah, I feel like ahead. it's partially what we're here for. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, t- can you talk to me about some of your... Exp- you, you tell several stories in the book mm-hmm. where you feel like um, you were being treated in a way that was clearly... Um, I guess racist is the word, or at least racially motivated. Mm -hmm. Um, People maybe didn't come right out and say certain things, Mm -hmm. but you were pretty sure of it. Mm -hmm. Um, How persistent was is that feeling for you, and to this day within the industry? Do you, you know, we're here, like we're here in New York City. Mm -hmm. You'd like to think that's not like Mm -hmm. a, a normal thing, but do you feel like that is widespread within the kitchens of of New York? I'll just say. 
Um, if I'm going to be honest with you, I think it's widespread everywhere. I think it's uh, it's a, it's something that I I mean, it's something I'm constantly reminded of. Mm -hmm. It's a, one of the reasons why I chose to name it "Notes from a Young Black Chef." Mm -hmm. um, it's inseparable I, from your other experience. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I'm reminded of it by the delivery guy that comes into the restaurant asking where the chef is when I'm standing right there. Right. But if it was a white guy in the same uniform, he'd walk up to me and ask me to sign something. You know, mm -hmm. I'm reminded of it when people come in for job interviews. You know, and they're like, "What do you do here?" And it's, you know, right. it, it's a it, it's it's that underlying subconscious um, way that I'm questioned about mm -hmm. my identity all the time. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's very prevalent in the kitchens. I mean, if you look at any of the refined kitchens, uh, how many people are of color are there on the staff? Yeah. Not many. Yes. I would say that's for a reason. You tell a couple of specific stories, right? Mm -hmm. The one that I'm really eager to talk to you about is you tell a story about Per Se and how you were people were talking to you there, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, not just Per Se, but I've spent a lot of time trailing in kitchens, let's say like three-star Michelin kitchens. Mm -hmm. For me reading it, there wasn't a lot about the exchange, mm -hmm. and I'm not questioning what happened, but yes, there sir. wasn't a lot about that exchange that I haven't witnessed in other kitchens between two white guys, between people, you know, other people from other backgrounds, mm -hmm. those kitchens can be really harsh, right? Mm -hmm. Now, I also know that as a Jewish person, I for sure have had moments where I've had exchanges with people that I can't point to a word that was said, but I feel like there was a little extra mustard in the antagonism mm -hmm. that was based on me being Jewish, you know, mm -hmm. and this is intensified for me when I'm in certain regions of this country, mm -hmm. right? And, and it's minimized when I'm in New York. Am I making sense? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I'm just... I think I, I say that clear in the book. I never said anyone said anything outright. You, you do. Know? No, you yeah, do. But you but you felt like very mm -hmm. certain that there was I mean it's you're I just want to make sure I'm understanding it that you would feel like it was basically something that you could pick up on mm -hmm. uh almost a, a, an energy or a or something like that that you've experienced throughout your life mm -hmm. between you and whoever was speaking to you Absolutely. and that it's completely ineffable and on like if there was a video you probably couldn't even point it out. Accurate? Uh, I don't know about if there was a video that's a little um, more telling, but you mean you maybe I've, could point to I, I, a I would say something so. in the eyes uh, or tonality. Yeah, <laughs> I mean the way that um, things are actually yeah. coming across. Um, but you know, for me, it, it is it's a, it's a feeling for sure because I've been through it before. Mm -hmm. You know, and I've 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 been through it where someone has followed up and said something that was not the smartest thing to say and you very mean after telling, the fact after in, the fact in private or, away from or, yeah you know or in front of people yeah um that were not you know documented in in, in the in the narrative yeah. um in other kitchens you know not just yeah. that so when it's masked with another word yeah and i know i know what you mean i'm picking up what you're what mm -hmm. you're putting down mm -hmm. um and it's it happens way too often mm-hmm when you do you feel like are there more do you feel like there are more um black cooks in this country who would want to be in those kitchens do you, is that something that's appealing i think i mean fine, i'm sure there's more than there dining, are but i think the fine dining is incredibly hard for for most people yeah. you know black or white yeah um but i think that there are more people of color that would be 
more intrigued if um, there are more people that look like them within the field. So you don't even think it's just a matter of whether or not other, pe other people are making them feel welcome. You think it's a matter of the landscape they're presented with. Yeah. That feels unwelcoming mm -hmm. just by virtue of the numbers. Virtue of the numbers and, yeah. and, the, and the, um, the intensity alone. Mm -hmm. Have you gotten any, I mean, I'm not asking for specific stories, but have you gotten any flack for telling some of the experiences you've had? Um, no, no, I haven't. I mean, I don't, I'm not seeking out you know, um, perspectives, you know, I've gotten uh -huh. a lot of, I've gotten a lot of people reach out to me yeah, and, you know, thank me for speaking up. So they're like, I, you validated me in making me know that I'm not crazy in these, Interesting. In these instances, right. Um, where people would say like, I didn't mean it that way or, um, or also people would say things outright and yeah. it's, it hasn't really been spoken about before, yeah. you know, um, and I think it's time that we do talk about it, yeah. you know, so there is a little bit more diversity in the fine dining landscape. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you went through the experience of writing this book. You're out talking to people now. You're doing interviews like this. Mm -hmm. You know, I've been involved in a few conferences recently where there's a lot of conversation about diversity and... Mm -hmm. To be honest, I feel like I don't feel like you and I are, but I feel like I've had conversations and I take as much blame myself as anyone I was talking to where I feel like I've been people I've been talking past other people. They've been talking past me that we're not communicating well. Mm -hmm. um, it leaves me feeling very sad. You know, this is going on in food writing as well right now. Mm -hmm. Right. And um, do you have any thoughts about what? Like how we, I mean, you just said if there were more people there, that's, that's it. That's great. You think it's that simple? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You do. I think it, it's twofold. It's, um, it's all across the board within the, within the culinary industry. You know, it's, it's, it's hiring food critics of color. It's hiring editors yeah. of color. Yeah. Um, writers. Yeah. <laughs> you know, all the way down um, yeah. to investing in you know young chefs of color mm -hmm. um young psalms yeah bar directors giving people chances um down to the kitchens mm -hmm. you know and promoting and hiring and it's not about affirmative action yeah. it's just about thinking about it during the hiring process right you know like am i doing my job right yes. now yes you know like okay i am supposed to be the leading authority on food yeah and food is of all colors yes do, do i have that right. in my arsenal right now so yeah. how am i really um how am i really telling the story of the nation if, yes. I'm, if i don't have the nation represented in my board it's funny i years ago i interviewed anita lowe mm -hmm. who, who if people don't know she had a restaurant for years called anisa closed maybe a year and a half ago something mm -hmm. like that and she told me she felt like there was almost, I, don't, I forget the term she used, but it was almost an accidental sexism, right? And that there were people who probably defined themselves as liberal, people who seemed to be you know, friendly and open to everybody, mm -hmm. until it's time to break out a checkbook and figure out which chef they're gonna back in a restaurant, mm -hmm. right? And yeah. she was saying, basically, that women chefs have all the same meetings that ma male chefs have when they're looking for investors. Mm -hmm. It's just they can't get to the... They can't close the deal. The they can't line, get yeah. to the finish line, yeah. right? And she thinks the people who are participating in that, by and large, don't even realize that they are sexist. Mm -hmm. Do you think the same the same thing happened in terms of people of you know non Caucasian? Absolutely, yeah. yeah, definitely. You can get the meetings, you can have the talks, you can show them your renderings. 
Yeah, it's closing deals. Um, yeah. That's difficult. You know, I think I've had a, you know, I would say I've, I've been very fortunate, you know, in my, um, in my career in having restaurants and opening restaurants, um, some more favorable than others. Yeah. Experiences. Yeah, but, sure. um, but yeah, I mean, if once again, look at the numbers, look at the industry as a whole and see the representation and yeah, same thing with, you know, chef Anita, um, chef Flo, like she's pretty much saying, look at the numbers. Yeah. I don't need to give you, uh, an example or a synopsis on, all the women or black people that have been in gotten to that last meeting and it hasn't right. they haven't closed a deal but yeah. look at the numbers yeah right you don't need 60 <laughs> minutes to make the point no <laughs> okay yeah. can you talk about you talk about in here I'd, I kind of loved I forget the exact terms you use but you talked about it's early in the book you tell the story there's a, you're doing a, an out of house event mm-hmm. and you say that there's like Chef Kwame there's what is it all smiles Kwame mm-hmm. and then you were talk about Kwame alone, Kwame alone and that's sort of and I think anyone who has a public persona or personas plural there does come a time where you sort of you can lose sight of like who who did that little kid I was grow up to be like who actually am I yeah right mm-hmm. have you have you what's your status in sorting that out for yourself if you even have time <laughs> to think about that I I honestly I'm, I think I'm still figuring it out yeah you know um as I go mm-hmm. you know I think people in general we spend a lot more time with other people than we do ourselves mm-hmm. um and it's having more time alone to figure figure that out. Yeah. So I'm still in the boat with with most of the world trying to trying to figure that out. So. Uh, are you busy enough right now that it's not really a top priority? That um, piece of it. It is. It's a top priority. Oh, it, it is. Will, it will always be a top priority. Okay. But I'm I am very busy. Yeah. 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 So tell me about your life at the moment. You got this book. It's getting uh-huh. a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, I saw you in Philly. For yeah. Five seconds. Yeah. We only shook hands because your collaborator and I were saying <laughs> hi, and you—I think you were carrying a box and you were blowing through, and we got a quick introduction, and that's mm-hmm. why I was able to track this interview down. Yeah. Uh, but you are like you're in constant motion right now. Absolutely. Uh, what's your life like right now? How are you managing things back at the at the at the, back at the ship back at the ranch, and uh-huh. uh, and uh, how are you finding time to enjoy this moment? Um, yeah, at times with friends, you know, I went out and celebrated with my friends the other night, um, ended up putting one of my friends in the ambulance at the end. That's how wild of a night it was. No, he, he had a, um, shellfish allergy. Oh gosh. Okay. (laughs) So the the night ended. (laughs) So I had to stab him with an EpiPen. It was crazy. did they? Yeah. No, I did. Oh, you did? Yeah. Pulp Fiction. Yeah, that's what I said. I was like, I feel like a Pulp Fiction. One, two. (laughs) I just, I did it. Um, (laughs) But um, had you it, ever injected anyone before? No, Oof. never. It was it was intense. Yeah. Then I didn't know how long to keep it in his leg, so we had to watch a YouTube video while the ambulance came. It was. Was he unconscious? No, 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 no. He no. just couldn't do it himself. Oh, you're not supposed to do it yourself. Oh, you're not. I well, I don't know about that, honestly. Okay. But I did it for him. Um, but anyway. Yeah. Uh, it's busy. You know, I got kitten and kin to Philly wing fries. Um, the book tour, so I try to be in the restaurant as much as I can. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, yeah, it's just it's just busy. Do you do anything to like take care of yourself? Like, do you do you do you run? Do you go to the gym? Do you are you do you try to actually make a point of sleeping, or are you young <laughs> enough that you can just keep going? I'm I'm just in constant motion right now. 
So you're running on uh, momentum. Running on momentum. Okay. Running on momentum. Okay. Can I quickly ask what the how you and Joshua David Stein hooked up on this book? We met in this room, actually. Oh, through, the, publisher the publisher introduced yeah. you guys? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. He introduced us, and um, then he came down to D.C. a couple times. Uh-huh. We met in person, and we talked on the phone a lot. Yeah. And, um, kind of really got to know each other. Okay. Yeah. And was it a pretty easy, um, did you guys have sort of a good symbiosis yeah. right off the bat? Yeah, it was pretty good. It was pretty good. He was a cool guy. So yeah. it was quick to really um, get on the same page. Uh-huh. Yeah. Was it at all, I'm only asking this because I was recently at a, pan, a panel discussion about diversity. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there was a comment, someone said, you know, and a lot of times people of color it's a person of color paired up with a white writer. Mm-hmm. And in the room, there were a lot, everyone went, uh, you know, there were a lot of groans. Mm-hmm. I had this book in my, ba- my <laughs> bag. Was that at all an issue for you? Or? You know, I didn't really think about it, honestly. Okay. It wasn't really a thought. Yeah. I mean, I guess you feel like the voice, he nailed your voice. Yeah. I mean, it took a while for us to really find, get, the, sweet find the sweet spot. Yeah. It took a long time. Yeah. Um, but um, once he found it, it was... It was go, 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 go. Yeah, I really can't tell you how much I... I mean, I, partially because I've collaborated with a lot of people, and I think it's hard to do. Mm-hmm. And it's, and I'm not trying to make this even this few minutes, so I'm going to move off him. But no, I think what I you think guys did, did together really... Um, it's seamless, I guess, is the word I used, you know, which I think I always tell people when I collaborate, my goal is to be invisible, mm-hmm. you know, except for my credit. Mm-hmm. I don't want people to see me, Yeah, you know. Absolutely. I just want to make the... Uh, you know, the author or the star, whatever you want to call that person, the center of attention, mm-hmm. you know, come through. And uh, I was really, you know, some of those scenes were, you know, in the streets and in the uh, housing complexes. I mean, it, it really rings authentic. It really rings well, thank authentic. You. Thank you. Um, so what are you thinking? You're going to do more books? Yeah, absolutely. More? You think you're going to do a... I th- I'm gonna are you going to pivot from this to a cookbook? I'm going to do a gonna... cookbook. Yeah. Cookbook. I really want to do a cookbook. Um, but I'd like to write another, you know, maybe 30 years down the line, another, another memoir. Are you going to wait that long? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, you did this one when you were still in the thick of it. <laughs> it kind of reminds me the way you fade out of the, you know, of your old restaurant. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I don't want to explain how the book ends or what the last line is. But it ends on a very grace, like on a grace note, mm-hmm. right? A note of sort of acceptance of, of, of where you are. Yeah, yeah. Just walking in my purpose. It kind of reminded me, in only in this way, um, of the book Eric Repair wrote. I don't know if you read 32 it, Yolks. Thirty Two Yokes, but that kind of ends with him coming to America. Mm-hmm. He he's writing it like thirty years after he did that, mm-hmm. but it would almost be as if he had written that book, like when he got here, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, yeah. But before he went to like Le Bernardin and had this whole story yeah. he's had, mm-hmm. it, it was very much the coming of age story. Um, and this book, in a way, reminds me of that. Which well, I thank mean you. Is a, which well, I mean thank is a you. That's huge. <laughs> that is huge to be compared to to someone of that stature. What yeah. was the CIA like for you? CIA was great. I mean, I had a really, really great time. Um, it was. It wasn't easy, you know, especially mm-hmm. paying for schools. You'll see in there figuring out ways to do that. But um, as far as the um, the education that I received from there was great. You know, the professors was really good yeah um yeah it was it was a great experience it was intense yeah yeah where do you fall out on uh, a decision making t- 
template for like a young person. There's so many people. There's so many Not chefs that who wants to go to culinary school. Well, or? there's or whether they sh- how they sh- decide if they should. You know, there's a lot of chefs who just flat out. If you talk to a chef like Jonathan Waxman, mm-hmm. just flat out doesn't believe in it, mm-hmm. right? Even though he did it. Not here, mm-hmm. but overseas, yeah. right? And then you talk to plenty of people who were like, that was my whole foundation. If I yeah. didn't go there, I would have been lost, you know? I think Is it's for certain people, and yeah. I, that's really it. You know, if you want to do it, you should do it. If do you're you going to enroll, you enroll. If, if you don't, go work in a kitchen. But Do you have a sense about what made it right for you? I just really wanted to go. That's just, all that I knew. That's all you knew. It was <laughs> yeah. just like an instinctual... And that's the thing. If you yeah. really want to do something, you do it. Don't let anybody else make you think... Yeah, you shouldn't be doing something because okay. they don't believe in it. It's nothing to do with you. Yeah, can you? Can we just quickly? Because mm-hmm. I, I love this list. Can we go through this list yeah. from the beginning of your book? Mm-hmm. This book is dedicated to all the women in my life who have shaped me into the man I am today. Can mm-hmm. you just exp- just a sentence or two about that? No, about these people. If I do a rundown, yeah. Okay, Maya. Maya's my fiance. Um, She's my rock, you know, she keeps me centered, she keeps me grounded, mm-hmm. and she's um, one of the reasons why I'm sitting across from you today. How long have you been together? Almost three years. Great. Yeah. Engaged for? Two and a half. Wow. Quick. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> Jewel. Jewel's my mother. Mm-hmm. Um, she's the reason why I cook. Mm-hmm. She's the reason why I am the man that I am, mm-hmm. and she's always been my biggest supporter. Tatiana. Tatiana is my big sister. Um, <laughs> I wish people could see your face as you're going through these names. She's um, she's been there with me since the beginning. Yeah, yeah. Annette. Aunt Annette is my aunt, my mother's aunt, but really like my mother's sister. Mm-hmm. Um, she lived in the Bronx with us, mm-hmm. and um, she was, you know, uh, a caretaker for me growing up. Mm-hmm. Trinity. Trinity's my niece. I watched her come out of my sister's vagina in our apartment <laughs> like it was a accidental birth she just shot out wow while my sister okay. was this wasn't like prearranged with a doula no, and all absolutely like, not we, we and the, went and the mini pool and all no. that <laughs> we went to the hospital and they told her she's not having contractions go home oof and then she was using the bathroom and her head came out so me my stepfather oh and my and her husband had to give birth Wow. It was crazy. Between that and the EpiPen, you're, uh, you're like... <laughs> Went to medical school. Kwame on the spot. Yeah. <laughs> Madison. Madison is my youngest niece. Yeah. Um, and she is a spitting image of me. She's crazy, and I love her. Cassie. Uh, Cassie is my grandmother. Okay. She's um, still a very loving woman. Mm-hmm. Um, very special. Momo. Momo's my great-grandmother. Rest in peace. She was the nicest person I've ever known in my entire life. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, yeah, I, I love my Momo. Tracy. Tracy was my babysitter growing up. <laughs> and she would not take any crap from me. Uh-huh. So, useful. Very useful. Good discipline. Mm-hmm. Joyce. Uh, Joyce was my mother's best friend growing up. Uh-huh. I just remember her always being around. Yeah. And being also that person to, like, whip me into shape. Got it. Yeah. Piku. Piku is the person that introduced my mom and dad together because she had parties very close to here in Hell's Kitchen. Yeah. Um, and she's got my mother started with her catering company. Got it. Yeah. I mean, that's quite a list. Yeah. Did you always know you were going to dedicate it to this group? No. I think I kind of just wrote down all the women that were like in my life that were really important. Yeah. 
it's I don't know. It's funny, right? The sort of because uh, I don't think any of these you said necessarily there's support, but I definitely in things that I've written, you know, the book I just did it was dedicated to my 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 mother-in-law mm-hmm. and my late grandmother, both of who died when I was writing it, mm-hmm. but. Those were the two people who I wouldn't say they necessarily sat and talked to me about support, but I felt like they were the they were there. They were there. They believed. Yeah. I knew they believed in me. Mm-hmm. I'm older than you are, but I guess, you know, you still if you're going to write, you need somebody to believe in you. Exactly. And, exactly. And but they really were sort of my north stars. It sounds very hokey, mm-hmm. and there's you know I've had men in my life who have been mentors and supportive and all that, but that's a very special sort of. It's a special thing. bond. Yeah. It's a special bond. Yeah. 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 Okay. Can I ask? It's. I know. It's. I. I was shocked when I got to the end. Your. Your only acknowledgement mm-hmm. is to your friend, mm-hmm. who just died last year. Mm-hmm. Are you able to talk about that? Yeah. Can, tell me about him. I mean, he's in the book. Yeah. Um, he was my best friend. Mm-hmm. You know, growing up, he's my brother. Um, and um, you know, he passed away from gun violence. Mm-hmm. Something that I am. Um, I mean, it's a very tough. A tough thing to talk about, you know. Um, he was probably my biggest supporter. You know, whenever I was feeling down or overwhelmed, yeah, I could call him and he would pretty much tell me to shut up. Like, do you know where we come from? Like, do you know where I'm at right now? Like, continue mm-hmm. doing what you're doing. You're doing great. Um, so he was the one when you needed to sort of get it out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and get a pep talk or whatever you want to call it. He yeah. was that was the call. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm sorry, I can see your guy. I didn't, yeah, mean, to ups- I didn't mean to upset you. Okay. I apologize. No, it's all right. Just really miss him. Yeah, I'm sorry. No, it's okay. You sure? Yeah. Okay. He's just taken very abruptly. Yeah. And um, he would have been very, um, very proud of me right now. So. Yeah. It was striking to me at the end because you yeah. guys came from the same place. Yeah. You know, and. Uh, I thought that was very poignant, and I thought it was especially poignant that that was that was your acknowledgement, you know. Was, yeah, it was it was right, you know. Um, you know, you talked about earlier with Joshua being very vivid yeah. of that time, like he spent a lot of time with Jake Wan, mm. you know, mm-hmm. um, in his house and yeah. getting to know him mm. and getting the perspective of what my friends had of me growing up, you know, so yeah. he can really paint the picture. Yes. Um, so it was. Um, Really, um, really tough when I got the phone call. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for sharing that again. Yeah, I'm yeah. sorry. I didn't no, mean no, to. No, no, no. It's okay. I didn't mean to do that. It's okay. Um, well, I know you got to go. I th- uh, Thanks for squeezing me into your publicity tour. <laughs> Listen, I have to just say it again. I'll have said it in the intro to the show. I, the, the book is Notes from a Young Black Chef. It's a memoir. I think it is. I love I mean, I really loved it. I really felt. And I felt like at a moment when I think a lot of us, again, this, this is a show about chefs, but, you know, there's a lot going on in our country right now. Absolutely. And I think for me, and, you know, I'm 51, and I felt like a lot of problems we had. I, you know, I've been saying to friends, like, I just had a talk with some guys I'd never met before in California. They're about my age. And I said, I think things are going backwards. Yeah. You know? Because when I grew up, I had people in my family, a lot of them, my parents' generation and my friends' parents, and we all talked about them. They were like unacknowledged racist. They didn't think they were racist, but mm-hmm. they were racist. Yeah. The jokes they told weren't okay. Their attitudes weren't okay, mm-hmm. you know? And, um, and I had friends, 
you know, who were black. And I was in Miami. I had friends who were Cuban. Mm -hmm. And we all thought we were, it's the way I think about my kids now. We all thought we like, oh, those guys were just so pathetic. You know, we've got it figured out. Yeah. And now I look around, I feel like it's worse. You know, I feel like it's worse for you in a way than it was for me and my crew, Mm -hmm. you know? And so in terms of somebody trying to figure out what the hell's going on and why we're, I think, regressing a little bit, I think ultimately to move to a better mm-hmm. place, this was very educational for me. Well, I felt you. like I really, I hope I'm making sense. Yeah. I felt like I really gained some perspective. Perspective, and that's what it's about. On, you know? on what your, your experience is being the world through your eyes over the first however many years of your life, decades of your life, um, and that's invaluable. Mm-hmm. That's invaluable. So thank you for that. Absolutely. Well, thank you. You know, I think if, uh, if that can do that to just one person, then, you know, I've succeeded with this book. Because I just want to showcase another perspective yeah, and get people to start thinking. I don't think anything's going to change overnight. I don't think things are going to stop, you know, dead in their tracks. But I think talking about these topics that aren't really that comfortable mm-hmm. leads to change. And then change leads to growth. Yeah. So can that's I, my plan. Can I ask you one other thing? Because you just said something. Yeah. Do you find, when you say talking about it, and you mm-hmm. mentioned it earlier, to me that's the essential Mm-hmm. Right. I think unless you're willing to get into a room with somebody, mm-hmm. I mean, it's been a friendly conversation, but I think it's even the more so if you have, there's someone you're in conflict with, I think you have to find a way to sit down and talk about it. Yeah. I, and I feel like that's, you know, this is a time now where no one wants to even like people want to text. They don't want to get on the phone. Mm-hmm. I think that the, the craft of conversation, the, the value of it, mm-hmm. I think is sort of being lost right now. Because this isn't going to get sorted out on Twitter. You know? No, not at I all. Feel like or in the comment section or no, something else. I feel it like really, you got to get in a room. you got to get in a room or you have to listen. Yes. And listening is probably the most important part of, um, of change and understanding is yeah. listening. Yeah. All right. Well, on that note, thank you again. Thank, thank you for you. the book. Absolutely. and. Uh, I hope we'll see each other again over the years. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Today's program was brought to you by El Cortez, a colorful bi-level restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn. El Cortez sports a bar on each floor, a patio for drinking zombies in the moonlight, and the capacity for just under a couple hundred revelers. New York Magazine's Chris Crowley profiled El Cortez, saying its owners aren't trying to mine Mexican restaurants of any era, but just mesh together a bunch of things that they like. The menu focuses on what they call all three Mexicans, hot plate, gringo, and Mexican-Mexican. There's no fried chicken queso or chili con carne, but mission-style burritos, loaded all-American tacos, and a chimichanga. There's also a cheeseburger, because who cares? Cocktails lean heavily in the direction of tiki and the kind of lowbrow drinks that caused the mixology revolution. Classic drinks your grandparents definitely drank, like the pina colada and rum punch, made with quality ingredients and a whole bunch of trial and error. Visit El Cortez at 17 Ingraham Street in Bushwick or online at elcortezbushwick.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. I'm Patrick Martins. I'm Brandon Hoy. And I'm Emily Pearson. Together we host The Main Course OG, where we cover food news and culture. Browse episodes of The Main Course OG wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome back to the show. I'm going to get you to my interview with Kelly Fields 
winner of Outstanding Pastry Chef at the James Beard Awards last week in just a moment. But Kate, just a couple of things. First of all, as I mentioned in the little teaser at the beginning of the show, I will be at the LA Chef Conference on Monday, May 20. That's this coming Monday. Uh, if you're in the Los Angeles area, the conference is actually in Santa Monica. Uh, it's put on by Brad Metzger, who's sort of a runs a hospitality recruitment company out there called Restaurant Solutions. And I showed you the lineup, right? It's insane. It is crazy. I don't think I've ever seen, I certainly have not seen on the West Coast uh, anything like this. I may have seen comparable assemblages at things like the James Beard Awards. But for a chef conference, a one-day event, it is just like every big name in the city. There's a number of panels. There's cooking demonstration. There's some uh, industry workshops. Um, it's an all-day affair. There's lunch by some uh, fairly prominent chefs. It's, it's too much for me to go into right now. But I'll be doing a Chef's Drugs and Rock and Roll panel discussion with a couple of huge names, Barbara Lazaroff, Susan Feniger, Russ Parsons, John Sedler, and Michael McCarty, who was just on the show recently for the 40th anniversary of Michael Santa Monica. I'm thrilled. It's an L.A. group that I'm having on the show, or on the uh, panel. So unlike a lot of the talks that I do around the country, which tend to be very general, this one will be L.A.-focused. And you also love L.A. I love Los Angeles. <laughs> it's, I'm staying a few extra days just to enjoy the city. Anyway, that's going on. And then another reminder, June 17th, 18th, and 19th, that's a Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. I will be participating in the Food Media Lab. It's the first time they're doing this. My friend Jody Liano has put this together with a couple of writers I admire. And it is a three-day, uh, I guess I would say, workshop, lecture, networking extravaganza. There's, there's uh, modules on podcasting. That's one that I'm co-teaching. Uh, there's uh, talks about pitching stories, branding yourself, photography, and it is, I think, going to be wonderful. And the whole spirit of it is that more mature media folks like myself are sharing whatever wisdom we can offer. And there's also going to be ample time for sort of networking and, uh, you know, talking between you know, the attendees and the presenters. I, I, you know how I am about this stuff. I, I talk, how many times a week do I, how many times a month do I talk to, a writer who's looking for advice two, three times? Yeah, a lot. For you years. Love, but you love it. I love it. Yeah. I, well, you know why? Because when I started doing what I do, nobody helped me. Oh, come on. <laughs> wah, wah, wah. Anyway, um, out. if you go to uh, my blog, tokeland.com slash appearances, you'll find links to all these things. And uh, for the Food Media Lab, you can go to thefoodmedialab.com. Or you can go to LACHEFCONFERENCE.COM for tickets to that. I hope to see you at any and all of these events. And if you are there, please make a point of saying hello to me. I love meeting listeners. Also, Caitlin, uh, I, I am renewing my plea, listeners, for you to please rate the show on iTunes or even better, review the show. I, I, I haven't been asking for this very often, but I have to tell you something, Caitlin, as you know, this has become a thing with me, and I really don't want it to sound arrogant. It's not ar it's I, I don't consider it arrogant because I put so much time into prepping for these interviews, editing these interviews, promoting the show, lugging my equipment on the road. But there is all of a sudden, this reminds me of what happened with blogs about 10 years ago. All of a sudden, everybody and their cousin has a podcast. Yeah, that's true. Everyone's realized that you can do an 
like a, an okay podcast with not a lot of effort and not a lot of expense. So the field right now is just a flood with podcasts. And one of the ways that you set yourself apart from the pack is the more reviews you have, the more ratings you have, when somebody goes to, say, Apple's iTunes store and searches for a podcast, let's say they just put in the word chefs, the more reviews and good ratings you have, the, the higher up your show will appear in the results. And ours has gradually climbed up. I feel very lucky that I got in when I did and not even, say, like a year later. But there's just an oversaturation right now. I don't mean any disrespect to anybody who's trying to do really good work and putting a little elbow grease into it. I, I probably mean a little frustration with people who are sort of cluttering up the joint because I think if you're going to do something like this and ask for people's time, you should, you know, at least, it doesn't have to sound great. It doesn't have huge, this show doesn't have huge production values. We're sitting here in our home office, but there's a lot of thought that goes into it. Right. And I feel like this, a lot of people are basically just broadcasting their hangout sessions. And what? Yeah, you're right. And so I'm asking, begging for all of you to help me stand out a little bit from the increasingly huge pack. I would really appreciate it. Okay. Caitlin, you've probably never met Kelly Fields. I never met her until I interviewed her. I, I met her at the office of her public relations agency here in New York a couple of weeks ago. She, again, won Outstanding Pastry Chef at the Beard Awards uh, last week. Um, I'm just crazy about her. I, I, I liked her the minute we sat down. Um, she's thoughtful as hell. <laughs> uh, she's somewhat modest, Um but also, I think, very confident in her abilities, at least at this point in her career. Uh, she is somebody, this kind of brings it full circle. You know, when Tom Colicchio came up to present an award at the Beard Awards last week, he made a comment that he loves the young generation that's currently coming up in this business because they're not settling for the status quo and they are trying to change things in the industry. And he said, and they're going to do it, right? And I can feel that. I think that is palpable right now. Um, and to me, Kelly's one of the people who's trying to do that. We talk very much in the show about what the mission of that restaurant is. And it's not just to serve food and it's not just to, you know, make a dollar. She has much, I don't even want to say grander. I would, I don't even think this is too strong a word. She has much more noble things in mind for what she and her team are trying to do. And, uh, we also got into a lot of interesting, I think, side talk about men and women in the industry and, and, about, and about the industry changing, and, and uh, it's a very open conversation. We kind of found that groove right away and sort of mined it, and I, and I think we got somewhere, and I think it was terrific, and I think it's a great compliment to the interview with Kwame. I just think these were two remarkably um, open people. I'm, I'm happy for their wins last week, and I think that's all I need to say about it. What do you think? I think that'll do it. Okay, so with that, here is my interview with last week's winner of Outstanding Pastry Chef at the James Beard Foundation Awards, Kelly Fields of Willa Jean in New Orleans. Here you go. So you and I just met literally for the first time mm -hmm. ever. Yep. So I generally, when I meet someone, I just like to go all the way back and, and then come all the way forward. Okay. So tell people where you're from. I grew up in Charleston, South Carolina. I moved right. to New Orleans in 1996. Okay. What, what was your childhood like? Like, what did your family do? And, and how did you first start finding your way to a kitchen? Right. Uh, my, my childhood was, you know, really good. My mom 
We grew most of the produce that we ate. Did uh, you? As a family. So you well, a, my mother did. You had a backyard garden? We did. We did. I did not appreciate that until much later in yeah. life. Um, and she approaches like pickling and, and preserving and mm-hmm. jarring like an Olympic sport. Um, and we lived on the water. So a lot of times my like weekly chores would be to go in the backyard, catch something, mm-hmm. pick something, and cook dinner with the family. But it was never something I realized how much I loved to do until I moved to New Orleans. Did you enjoy the eating part of it? Oh, yeah. You did. So you like food. I've always been an eater. Okay. You like food. You like flavor. You liked all that. Yes. It's just, well, I guess when you use the word chore, that doesn't really indicate pleasure. Well, I mean, chore, I think about chores as like, I would much rather cook the dinner for the family than like do the dishes. I always always negotiated with my siblings. Got it. On who was doing what. Got it. My sister in particular is a terrible cook. Oh, really? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) What is it about chefs? They always feel totally fine Mm -hmm. um, passing judgment on civilian relatives. Well, I mean, (laughs) she'll be the first one to tell you she's a terrible cook. No, I'm sure. Um, One incident in particular, she tried to make mashed potatoes. That was her, like, thinking outside of her own box. Uh she She peeled potatoes and cut them and put them on the stove. Turn the stove on high. Never put water in the in the pan in the pot. Just the potatoes. <laughs> yeah. So okay. when we went to lift up the pot, when we realized what was going on, the the bottom yeah. and the potatoes stayed. They had like glued themselves to the. Oh my gosh! The this stove. is like an inadvertent Paul Prudhomme tribute. Exactly. Like blackened yep. blackened potatoes. Black potatoes. <laughs> okay. So she wasn't allowed to cook again. Right. Uh, we well, still, under- uh, understandably. We still make fun of her for it. Obviously. I, I've heard the term um, when I've read about you, low country. Uh-huh. What does that mean? Uh, low Can you explain is to a, a poor northern boy like myself? Yeah, so low like, what does that mean? Specifically, yeah. um, the area in South Carolina which you grew up, which is like right below like Appalachia. Uh-huh. Um, for me, what it means is like I grew up in a marsh. Okay. It's all very like low lying land. So we had, you know, it's like everything's sort of like wet. So we had really good seafood. We had really good rice. We had, um, you know, phenomenal like summer crops. Mm-hmm. stone fruit all that and it was for me it's a very like local sort of dirty way of eating but completely clean dirty sounds a what do you mean by dirty like i have a dish on the menu at willa jean right now that i describe as it tastes the way my backyard smelled okay low tide. <laughs> and like okay. it's just this like dirty earthy like you're connected to it completely okay and what is it that's we're talking about fresh water Yes. Right. When and I brackish talk- water is in my It's backyard. brackish. Brackish was my backyard where I grew up. Salt. Yeah. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. I would have assumed otherwise. Yep. That's interesting. Yep. Okay. So that's a, that's an intense smell. That stays it's, with you. Yeah. What are, when you, they say that smell is one of the most powerful triggers for memory. Mm-hmm. I would agree with that. When you get, if you go back home or something, if you get near it, you get that smell. What's, yeah. What comes to your mind? What does that evoke for you? Um, for me, especially the, you know, like the backyard smells, it's like, you know, getting home from school and like just running. Like I would run down the dock of our backyard and just like jump in the water. And mm-hmm. I did that every day. Mm-hmm. And then I'd get out and I'd either fish or I'd, you know, I dropped crab traps before school. So I was like pulling those up. Or grab the casting net and like catch some shrimp to cook for dinner. Mm-hmm. And that like that's sort of like young, free, like not a care in the world. Like, what do I have today? It's like a, you know, like a gift every yeah. day. You don't know what you're gonna get. Yeah. So you see, you grew up in Charleston. Were you in Charleston proper? I was right outside in um, okay. Somerville, South Carolina. Okay. Is so that was, is that a small town? 
Um, not anymore. It wasn't. Was it I at was the time? Like, do you know, like population yeah. what uh, roughly? Do you have a sense? I have no sense. No of that sense. Whatsoever. Okay. So, um, what are dishes that really stand out for you from childhood? Um, fried chicken. Uh huh. Cut my teeth on fried chicken. Uh, my mom actually was a tremendous baker, mm-hmm. um, and she baked far more than she cooked. Mm-hmm. Um, so we would, you know, we would make ice cream on the on the weekends. I remember sitting on the back porch and like hand cranking the. Just for the record, you were pantomiming. Mm-hmm. Before you said hand crank, I knew you were going to say hand crank because you just <laughs> pantomimed it. Yeah. This was like a hand. This was a machine where you put like yeah. the rock, like the salt, rock salt, the rock salt in, yeah. and the ice. Okay. So you just sit out there for an hour. Yeah. 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 That was every weekend. Okay. Um, so I have a lot more memory of baking yeah. with my family yeah. than I do like just cooking. Like okay. cooking was. I remember learning how to make fried chicken from my mom. Mm-hmm. Um, and like casserole, like she grew up in that era where it was like a lot of casseroles and yeah. this and that, but yeah. it was a lot of baking. Okay. Was she an intuitive ba- baker in other words, or was it like, was she like kind of recipe bound or was she someone who just had a really natural sort of feel and instinct for it? She's got a really natural feel for baking. Okay. I don't know if she would agree with me on that, but to, to think back about how she did it and she had a recipe in front of her, but she was just you know, grab a handful of this and this because she had she had so much muscle memory in it because mm-hmm. it's also something she did with her mother. Right. What about, what, what term do you use to describe that? Like I, the first time I ever made pasta, the first time I ever made gnocchi, and, and these aren't things I particularly enjoy personally mm-hmm. making. Um, the first time I ever made a pie crust, I'm pretty good at it. And I remember saying to a chef friend of mine, you know, I think I saw her right after I'd made my first pie crust. You know, I said, I made a really good, and she said something like, well, you have soft hands. You know, you yeah. must have soft hands. Or yeah. like, what term do you use to describe I, that? I use intuition. Like, intuition. The way that I cook and the way that I bake is intuitive. Mm-hmm. Like, I listen to the food. It lets me know when it's ready. You're Period. talking about when it's cooking. Yeah. Well, even even like making a pie dough, like when you're cutting that butter in. Yeah. Like, you just, you just know there's that point, and you're like, okay, you're ready. Okay. Yeah. It's a leap of faith. Yeah. A little bit. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Okay, so when do you start to have a notion that you might want to do this professionally? Um, I met a very good friend when I moved to New Orleans named Margaret. Mm-hmm. Um, her parents owned a little mom-and-pop bakery mm-hmm. on St. Charles Avenue, um, and they needed help uh, with an overnight baking shift mm-hmm. and called in a couple people that they knew, so I went. Okay. And that was that was the end of everything I knew. You just went to pitch in. Yeah, I went to help and You were being a good friend. Yeah. Okay. And a week later I worked there full time and What did you do that night? Um, I made cheesecakes. I learned how to roll baguettes. Uh-huh. Um, and you know, I actually was just like bagging bread up and helping them. This was like stuff. all hands on deck. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. They and had they had won a contract to do all of the bread coming out of uh, to cater the airlines coming out of New Orleans Airport. Oh wow! So it went from like mom and pop sure. to like we need to make eighteen thousand pieces of bread tonight. And we cannot mess this up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, what did you think you were going to do before that? Did you have another thing in mind? Um, I always thought I would go to medical school. Medical school. Yeah. Okay. And any particular specialty that you did? No, you a- I mean I always thought like I always enjoyed like thinking I would be a. Uh, emergency room doctor really or a pediatrician but they okay. tell you never like I also was married to everybody telling me like you don't know what kind of medicine you would practice until you're doing it right so I never try to get too far ahead of myself interesting not unlike the cooking path correct right like correct. they say the best way to go into cooking is to just go in to become a cook exactly and then see what happens mm-hmm. um 
did you start down that path at all? I did. I did. Were you like pre-med? Uh, yeah, I was majoring in chemistry. And uh-huh. Did you um, enjoy it? I hated school. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was. I learned how to be good at it, but I hated it. Okay. So. Were you in school in New Orleans? Is uh, that what drove yeah. your move there? For yeah, for okay. a little bit, and then. Um, you know, the minute I got a spatula in my hand and had this applicable chemistry in front of me, I never looked back. Interesting. Yeah. Did you, um, what was mom's reaction to the change? That's a big shift. Well, yeah, that's. Um, I mean, in all kinds of ways. The lifestyle, the what yeah. people perceive as your income ceiling. Surely, surely. All, everything. And it was before, you know, Food Network. Like, this is the 90s mm-hmm. we're talking about. So, you know, being a cook or being a chef wasn't the like career choice it is today mm-hmm. like chefs weren't rock stars chefs mm-hmm. were people who maybe just couldn't do anything else yep um and it took i think it took my parents a little bit longer to get on board than they'd like to admit mm-hmm. but that's where my grandmother came in who now my restaurant is named after because she's like if you love something you have to do it interesting yep. so the older generation yep. Not usually the way it goes. Usually yeah. the further usually the further back the birth date is, the yeah. more disapproving yeah. the person is of this career. Yeah. No, she told me to dive right in. Okay. She like I was like, I can't really afford to do that. Yeah. She paid my she's like, I'll pay your rent, don't tell your cousins. Uh-huh. You have to pursue it. What did that mean to you at the time? It was a, I mean, I felt like I like woke up and realized what the world was supposed to be for me. So take, take me back to that night, that all-nighter at the bakery. Mm-hmm. What was it? Was there a moment? Was there a particular task? Was there, was it even that night or was it like as you were like walking home the next morning? Like what was the, what was the thing that drew you to it? If you, if you know. I think it's ever like it, it, like it naturally occurred to me and everything came very naturally because it, it's what I had been doing my whole life without mm-hmm. any real like end goal. Um, or without any, as you said, the professions right. changed. So that was just something you right. thought of as like something you would do at home. Yeah. And then I, yeah. you know, I saw this community come together and like come together over, uh, over food a way that I'd never seen and in, in the actual production of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was like the vibe and the stress and like all, everything about it. I loved mm-hmm. like, hurry up and wait, or like get out of the way, like everything about it. Can we just take a quick second? I, I'll apologize to longtime listeners because this conversation happened once before when Hooney Kim was on the show. Um, but Hooney Kim, who has the restaurant Don John, which is, and uh, uh, excuse me, Han John and Donji. Han John's like six blocks from where we're mm-hmm. sitting or seven blocks from where we're sitting. Um, but he had started down the medical path. Mm-hmm. And I would just love your take on this because I think you're only the second guest I've been able to ask mm-hmm. this of. Um, especially since you mentioned emergency room doctor. My belief has always been that the best television show or movie ever done about a restaurant was ER. Oh my God, yes. And And that it's obviously not about a restaurant actually, but what happens in the in the in the back is the kitchen, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And what happens at the reception desk is the front of house, right? Right. And every and, every conflict in that show could be resolved with the yes chef. Yeah. Well, yeah. that too. Yeah. yeah. But I would just love your take on this because I really do feel the the closest thing I've seen ever in a dramatic anything that actually captured the rhythm, mm-hmm. the ups and downs, the ebb and flow, right? The stress, all of it, the interaction with 
the you know the the guest yeah. or the you know and it's no accident you know the word hospitality and the word hospital actually mm-hmm. come from the same Latin root yeah right oh, which, wow this is really interesting I love that's it. the true thing yeah. but what's your what's your do you, you I mean you lit up when I brought you had a you had yeah, a light bulb no, moment real. as I started asking the question I mean I remember watching ER as a kid and I like I loved it for all those reasons and. You know, it really it kind of recently popped up on one of the streaming things, and I remember yeah, I think watching Hulu an has episode. Yeah, um, rewatching an episode from the from the very beginning, and I remember at some point thinking while I was watching it, I'm like, "Dude, just say yes, chef." Like that's <laughs> like when you're superior. Like right. that's sort of that say everything about it is the same. So do you see? Do you feel like there were things that appealed to you about that potential path that are satisfied by? What you ended up doing? Yeah, I mean, one of the things I have to accept about myself is I thrive in chaos. You do? Absolutely. You like adrenaline? Yeah. Okay. Like, the harder, the more insurmountable the the odds are against you, the more I sort of thrive in that. Mm-hmm. You know, I find that now where, like, I willingly procrastinate because there's not enough pressure to get it done. Mm-hmm. And when the pressure goes, I'm like, okay, let's go. And then, right. You know, I get really... Um, I underperform when it, we have a lull and you know business is slow or like right. everything's running kind of smooth. Yeah, it always makes me a little suspicious. I think a lot of creative people that's the mm-hmm. that's like the best mode for them to to be stimulated. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So so how do you do, you decide to go pro or you decide to pursue that path? How do you start? How do you start? What are the baby steps that start um, you down that road? So I started working at that bakery mm-hmm. um, and was speaking. You know, I talked to my grandma like three times a week. Um, and she told me I need to figure out like what chefs I want to emulate, like who do I want to be? Um, and I found Susan Spicer Mm. who had just won her James Beard award. She was, is, continues to be the top of her game in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. Um, and she had just opened Spice Inc. in the warehouse district, Mm -hmm. uh, which had a bakery, a pastry section and a savory section all in one. Uh, and I did just enough research on her to get the job that I was unqualified for at the time. <laughs> okay. Um, so I walked in. Wait, when you say you did just enough research on her so you could get the job, yeah, what do you mean just, by that? So like, she interviewed I, you and you... She interviewed me. Um, and what, she was like, what's your favorite dessert? And yeah, you said or what like, you knew was, you said her favorite dessert? No, well, kind of I learned like where she came from and that she got into cooking late in her life. Okay. And, um, you know, sort of spoke to that with her. And, you know, I was willing to learn anything and everything. Yeah. I didn't know what that meant at that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I sort of set a, a tone that I knew stuff already because mm-hmm. I thought that I did. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started the next morning and it was like eye opening. Like I was terrified. I was, I should not have been in that kitchen because everybody was so talented and it was the most thrilling challenge of my life. What technically, what was your role? I was a pastry cook and I was learning bread at the time. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay. So I go to work at 3 a.m. Yeah. And work pastry until about noon, and then I'd switch over and learn bread. Oh my gosh. It was amazing. What were what 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 were you what got you through? Um. I learned enough. I paid attention enough to learn that thing like basic pastry fundamentals that I was lacking. I could ask the woman that was the pastry chef mm-hmm. how she wanted it done, mm-hmm. so she would explain it to me. And then I would learn it on the thing, and I would I would go home every night and just fill up notebooks with everything that I, like 
how to make pastry cream. I'd never done that before. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would just fill up notebooks. Fill up notebooks because you didn't have time to write during the workday? You were filling it up with what they had told you or you were yeah. l- looking at cookbooks and No, writing? I was filling up what she had told like Before what I had like done left your day. brain. Yeah. Okay. Just like I couldn't stop and write it down, one, because I didn't have time, and two, because they thought I knew this. Yeah, right. I had convinced them that I knew this. For anyone out there who needs to record anything, that was really smart yeah. because... People think they're going to remember things, yeah. and by the time you've gone to bed once and woken up once, it's yeah. all. Even when you're younger and your brain's yeah. in tip-top shape, stuff stuff is it fades yeah. quickly. Very quickly. Quickly. Very did quickly. you practice at home? I did. You did. I did. Yeah. Yeah. I was like making pastry cream and mm-hmm. you know anything I could at home to try yeah. to just like figure out what like what does this word mean? What is this technique? Like mm-hmm. just sort of like to better myself when I walked in the door the next mm-hmm. time. How long did it take, do you think, before you felt like you were kind of hit your stride? I'm still waiting for that day. (laughs) (laughs) Well, how about in that job? Um, Like, how long did it take from going from this sort of wide-eyed, you know, kid who talked their way into the gig? I don't know that I ever got out of that phase of that job. Yeah, and that job led me to know that I wanted to go to culinary school. Mm-hmm. and sort of get the formal education because like not only did I love the technique and the thrill of the kitchen but I really like like food history and food science mm-hmm. and I wanted obviously um, I wanted to learn all that so I decided at that job to go to Johnson and Wales okay and that's how I got there uh-huh now yeah. tell me I Johnson and Wales you know it's so funny because it's a great school mm-hmm. you hear about the CIA so much mm-hmm. um, Tell us about Johnson & Wales. Just what was it like? So I went to the Johnson & Wales campus that was in Charleston, Mm -hmm. which is no longer there. They've relocated to Charlotte. Right. Um, What do they have? They have that one. They have have the one in uh, Providence. Charlotte. I think they still have one in Miami, right? Miami, I think. And I think they have one in Denver. Oh, that's news to me. Okay. They did in the time. I assume it's still there. Um, And they have some sort of agreement, or they did, uh, with the school in Sweden. Okay. For like something with horses. Okay. Yeah. All right. In any event. Um, but what was that school like? How big was it? Um, and what was the sort of vibe there? There was probably in my pastry program, because I did the baking and pastry program, um, we had about 150 kids when we started. A lot. In the program. Yeah. Um, by the time I graduated, there was probably 75 of us really yeah and i think like four of us are still doing like work in the industry <laughs> how do you, you is this through like facebook yeah or? like okay. the updates and yeah. social media and all wow that, so. but half the class dropped out mm-hmm. or rang the bell as i well, like to I say i mean it's not it's a really you know the first day of school they're like why are you here and people really really like to make cookies or decorate cakes and like culinary school isn't quite that yeah um and when you get a realistic idea of what the industry looks like a lot of people are like oh it's not what i thought mm-hmm. so, right understandably okay. and you you took right to it you loved it i loved it okay i loved it how was it a two-year program two-year program okay yeah. and then was there an externship there was and i had i got a job my first year uh working at a restaurant in charleston so i would um i would get up and go to work for 3 30 a.m okay work till 11 30 and then go to school from 12 to 8. Wow. And so I worked my way up at that restaurant and um, took over the pastry program okay. right as my externship was coming up. What so was I the name of the restaurant? It. Circa 1886. Okay. Um, so that was I just stayed there and 
you know, wrote my first pastry menus that went into effect and all that during my externship. Now, when you start having an opportunity to create your own menus, mm-hmm. what, what, how did, what was your, what did you see as your style if you did at that time? Oh, I didn't. I was just trying to show off, really. Meaning what? Like, sort of show everybody, like, why, like, why, why was I the one writing the menu? Why was I the one in charge? And, Mm -hmm. you know, I had never written a menu before. Mm -hmm. I never understood the concept or everything that you have to think about in a menu. Mm -hmm. And I just, like, tried to flex my muscles on a piece of paper, basically. And it it failed miserably, Mm -hmm. as it it should have. What goes into a pastry menu? Um, like you just said, the things you need to, like, yeah, what, what it, are it the considerations? Really thoughtful. Like, what do you have space for? What does service look like? Who's, you know, especially in restaurants today, like who's plating the dessert? Is it you or is it somebody on Garmage? Is it somebody mm-hmm. that doesn't know anything about pastry? Um, what's the cost associated? And, you know, like, what are you using to make your restaurant sort of a nose to tail, even in the pastry shop? Mm-hmm. Meaning... Like using not everything. wasting things exactly mm-hmm. exactly and none of that none of that comes before you're actually doing it mm-hmm. um and how like temperature fluctuation during service because a lot of pastry cooks go in and work in the morning when a restaurant's not like fired up and at full temperature like yeah. at night when it gets really hot right. that changes the game mm. you know what i mean like all of a sudden the kitchen's 20 degrees hotter and you think you have this chocolate thing that's able to sit there because that's your experience in that kitchen. Right. And every, every morning you're coming in and you're like, what's happening? Like, (laughs) why is this destroyed? What are you guys doing? Nobody respects me. Like, right. When really it's just, it's It's a kitchen. Nature of the beast. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. So what kind of, what else goes into, how about just in a vacuum, let's say, Mm -hmm. right. You, you put aside the considerations you just mentioned. Right. Are you generally, you know, and any most, I mean, obviously not if you were working in some avant-garde, you know, mm-hmm. place or whatever you want to call it, modernist, or, but by and large, if you were doing a menu for a restaurant, like let's say you just took a job somewhere for some reason, mm-hmm. right, even though you have your own joint, right, and new menu, are there certain marks from a dessert, like is it like a fruit thing, a chocolate thing, a really creamy thing, mm-hmm. uh, is that more or less? Yeah, I think that... Are there that marks still, you have to hit? Yeah, I think that's still applies Mm -hmm. um it does apply today it did when i was coming up in this business the number one rule of any menu though is it has to be a menu of desserts people want to buy because if you're not selling them there's no point to any of it Mm -hmm. um and i think i think a chocolate a custard a fruit is pretty like those are the three you can't and Mm -hmm. anything beyond that is sort of bonus material Mm -hmm. are there any other are there any underlying um, philosophies that you have about dessert. In other words, some people talk about dessert, and they say, <laughs> yeah. they say like I, I want. A lot of people say this. Uh, you know, I want to evoke childhood memories. You know, desserts are about childhood memories. Sure. Uh, you spoke about your childhood. I'm not trying to like set you up with this, but but when you come at a dessert, right, mm-hmm. or a dessert menu, like what's what's the um, what's the um, what's the what's the mindset, or what's the beyond it being. I keep hearing this word lately, craveable. Right. Beyond it being craveable, right. where, I mean, where, I what's think, your sort of um, just just mentality about it? Um, for me, these days, it has to be, like, obviously, there's that comfort level you want with somebody. You can call that nostalgia or evoking childhood memories, but, like, none of us have parallel experiences. So right. what resonates with me is not going to resonate with, you know, 
mm-hmm. everyone. Um, for me, and my staff mocks me all the time when I say this, is that I build desserts like you build a salad. I love that. Can you? I don't know what yeah. it means. So, <laughs> but I love it. I'm always so like, plate it like I'm a intrigued. salad, and everybody walks around the kitchen at Willage, and they're like, plate it like a salad. Like anytime there's a question about like how something's going to be plated, um, for me it's like a mixtape, and like when you got a mixtape when you were a kid, and you didn't know what song was next, and you were just like in it and really in that experience. That's how every bite should feel of a dessert. Mm-hmm. Like d- pastry in general is so optional t- these days. What do you mean? Like people, like people don't have to get dessert. You have to make them want it. Mm-hmm. You have to get the the wait staff behind it and mm-hmm. have pride in it to sell it, mm-hmm. and then make those people like love it so much they want to come back and have mm-hmm. that experience again. Um, so for me, like palate fatigue and desserts is a is a real problem with mm-hmm. our industry. You know these giant pieces of cake that the first three bites are phenomenal, but I don't want to go beyond that. I don't want to right. take the next 20 bites. Right. So I want a dessert that's really interesting to eat. Everybody's different. There's texture. There's flavor. There's there's uh, different temperatures. Mm-hmm. All of that in a bite. Mm-hmm. And I want to keep going back because, like, what's next? Do you like a certain amount of, um, like, interactivity to be a part of it? In other words, that um, – because I think about, like, if I think about a salad, I think about this, right? Mm-hmm. And I think if I think about the way a lot of people plate their savory food, I think this is true, that you can sort of determine what's going to be in each bite. Like, yeah, I, I want, want a I'm, little of this compote and a little of the mm-hmm. ice cream and a little of this, whatever, you know, crispy yeah. thing. Yeah. Everything is just That far it's not dictated. Apart. Exactly. Yeah. Like, maybe the first bite is the way you set sure. it up so that they sort of get an understanding of, like, what that perfect bite might be. Mm-hmm. But then they can, like, choose their own adventure. Okay. Yes. So that's what you mean. Plate yeah. it like a salad. Plate it like a salad. I love that. Yeah. Do you try to stay away from things being too rich when you talk about f- palate fatigue? Yeah. I I don't like super rich food. I don't like super sweet food. Mm. Um, okay. Especially in New Orleans where everything is really heavy and really really rich it's not a subtle it's not a subtle food scene (laughs) and so desserts are not a thing in new orleans that right um people really think of as like this light like continuation of the meal it's like bread pudding right um i try to it's not a fruit it's not a fruit plate town no unless it's covered in caramel and on caught on fire yeah right Um, right I try to subscribe to the opposite mm-hmm. approach to, to dessert in particular. Okay. Like, what's going to leave that person feeling really satisfied uh-huh. and not, like, overly heavy at the end? Yeah. So tell me about, tell me about the genesis of Willa Jean. Whew, Willa Jean. Um, we well, first, before we do yeah. this, can you tell me a little more about your grandmother? Yeah. So my grandmother, she was a terrible cook. Okay. Um, she was not Southern. Everybody wants to sub- subscribe to that sort of... Southern grandmother, I learned how to cook under. She was t- she sh- she fed us only the only things I remember eating at her house were shit on a shingle. Tell people what that is. Uh, she did it on a little Melba toast because she was trying to be fancy. So it's like basically sausage gravy and cheese mm-hmm. over toast. Um, and she also made this stuff we called slush, which was orange juice concentrate, pineapple, bananas, and cherries mm. that she would freeze, and then like give us ice cups full mm-hmm. of the slush. And that's what I remember eating at my grandmother's house. Like, not a good cook. Okay. Um, But she was incredibly sassy, incredibly smart, incredibly sarcastic and Mm -hmm. hard-headed. 
um, which meant when I was growing up, my nickname was Willa Jean Jr. because I apparently am all of, of, of those things. Too. Are you? I, I guess Are you holding so. back with me? You don't <laughs> seem like any of those things. <laughs> I'm learning. It's a practice. But <laughs> okay, I can take it yeah, if you want to yeah. like. No, I think if you want to let me have it in a kitchen every day, I get pretty. Like I, I like to think of myself as incredibly witty and funny. Mm -hmm. Some people agree, some people don't. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so she was, she was my biggest cheerleader in life. And, yeah. You know, when I started cooking, she obviously mm -hmm. encouraged me to do it and mm -hmm. paid my rent so that I could. Um, she is the one that encouraged me to go to Johnson and Wales. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, like even beyond professional, like when I was a young kid, like growing up in the Bible Belt of the South and sort of was the black sheep of that and uh, sort of started struggling with my sexuality and all that and that thing. She was, she was the advocate to help me be exactly who I am. Mm. At and what age were you sort of um, public? Was, did you, you know, come out or like, I don't what know age that I was ever in. Okay. Like it was never this big, like, Oh, by the way, guys, like everybody just sort of knew it. And so you didn't have to make a, you didn't have to sit everybody down. No, the or, only person that, was surprised by it was my father okay um and he had a really hard time with it and my mom was laying in bed and he was pacing yelling at me and my mom like was reading a magazine and looked up and said if you haven't known this since she was five you're not paying attention and like went back to her magazine so um because my grandmother was like put yourself out there don't apologize for it um that Gosh, is your grandmother was really she's awesome ahead of her generation yeah she was really something else. Not so. even just not from a Southern standpoint. Right. I mean, you know, my grandmother was from Philadelphia. And forget right. about it. Right. Yeah. Um, so she, yeah, she, she built like that's the, that's the goal of Willa Jean. Mm -hmm. We're gonna put ourselves out there, and mm -hmm. you know, we want to nourish on every level, and we mm -hmm. want to create an experience that's great for everyone. And um, this is exactly who we are. And some people aren't gonna like that, but it's not our place to apologize. Mm -hmm. So what, how does that manifest itself? Um, it, how does it manifest itself? What do you say, Lizzie? So Lizzie's here. Who, <laughs> tell people who Lizzie is. Lizzie's my assistant. I call her my chief of staff. Okay. What's your last um, name, Lizzie? Faulkner. Yeah. Faulkner. That's yeah. a good Southern name. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oxford, Mississippi. <laughs> I'm not very Southern. Are you related? <laughs> my dad says we are. But really? Are you about to talk in terms that we're not going to understand for a couple hours? Yeah. <laughs> Long run on, exactly, okay. Yeah, I think it, that sort of idea of, of being, being exactly who we are and, you know, also I say the mission of Willa Jean is to secure the future. And mm. that's, that's the brand, that's the business, that's the guests, that's the, sta like the staff, um, the farmers, everybody that we do. Like, how do we secure a future for everyone? Mm -hmm. um, and everything from the way we source food to the way that we hire people mm -hmm. to... Um, you know, the experience and the, the inclusion we try to promote as a business, as mm -hmm. a brand, um, everything is based in that thought. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, uh, you know, admittedly, we screw it all up. But How do you mean? Like, I don't get it right every time. We're trying right. to, like, change the, change the face of the restaurant industry. And I'm trying to make sure that, you know, we're hiring people that reflect our community and... Mm -hmm. um, you know, investing in them and, and creating this equitable culture for everyone that's sure. in our restaurant. Sure. Um, and 
you know, it's a learning evolution and, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's a thrilling challenge. It's, it's something every, every encounter that I have or anybody in my restaurant has every time is a, is an opportunity to be better and do better mm -hmm. and like set a new example for mm -hmm. what we look like as a restaurant and even as a community. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes, sometimes you mess it up, but, but can you, can you, uh, can you be a little more specific to me about what you mean by the things you're saying in the last two minutes? Yeah, like like I, when you say you want the restaurant to reflect our community, when you talk about inclusion, when you yeah. talk like what what exactly are we talking about? Um, I want to create a restaurant. I am trying to create a restaurant that um, gives everybody in my community in New Orleans equal footing mm -hmm. to be invested in and to reach the goals they have for themselves professionally and personally, mm -hmm. whether that's in my restaurant or something else, like what I can do to help that person, um, you know, minorities, queer people, like whoever it is that feels like they haven't been given adequate space mm -hmm. or, um, you know, equal footing in the industry. Like I'm trying to create that space where they can get it. Mm -hmm. Um, now, is that a stated... We're here talking about yep. it right now, right? Yep. But is that a stated thing for the restaurant? Or is that just how you... I'll tell you why I ask. Yeah. I, I, I don't need to get into specifics, mm -hmm. right? But a goal of this show from day one... It, it's, the word is in the description of the show. But, yep. you know, it's, I don't jump up and down about it. I don't... Um, uh, I don't uh, call... I don't introduce my guests by their demographic. Mm -hmm. I don't, uh, and also, you know, I'm a straight, white, middle-aged dude, right? Yeah. But a mission of this show from day one has been to be a diverse show, right. a, but in all kinds of ways, right? Mm -hmm. Not just racially, geographically, um, generationally, mm -hmm. uh, sexual orientation, all of this. This all, for me, falls under diversity, mm -hmm. especially in the restaurant yeah. business, right? Absolutely. But I, you know, I'm sort of, I guess, what I call a Gandhiist. It's like, be the change you want to see. Mm -hmm. So I just kind of do it, you know? Right, exactly. But I've had some weird dialogues recently with people because I feel like, I don't know, I feel like if you don't, like, uh, put a neon sign out, like, it's almost like sometimes people don't get it or get Right. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm wondering for you. Does for that me, make sense? Not, so like, yeah. I'm wondering for you, like, is this a stated thing anywhere? Do you talk about this a lot or are you just sort of... Or you just sort of do it? Um, we talk about it as a team. Internally. Yeah, about okay. how to do it. And especially in those times, like, in, the, in this process, I'm unlearning 20 years of old guard industry. Like the You mean in terms of how you act in the kitchen? Yes, and exactly. Right, yeah, sure. Um, and I, you know, back in the day, like, you know, I was one of the guys as far as, as, what far as that What does that mean goes. to you? Um, I was put in positions to run kitchens without any real example of leadership. Yeah. Um, and it was so cutthroat and it was so territorial and it was, it was ego driven and I have zero confidence. And so at that point in my life, mm -hmm. so at that point it was all ego driven and the ego came through and like if somebody did something wrong or challenged it, it was like, I made it personal. Um, I have since learned from that. But, but when you 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 forced yourself to do that because that you're, it was your impression that that yeah. was how you run a kitchen, yeah. Or you found yourself drunk on the authority. No, I, I that was the example set for me, so that's the example I. So you mimicked copied. it, yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Did you feel bad about yourself at the time? Oh yeah, all the time. In the moment. Yeah. Okay. And then you just I, didn't know I, another yeah. way. Correct. Yeah. And so sometimes that memory, that muscle memory, and that sort of reactionary memory comes. And you know, if something we're we're a super busy restaurant, 
and we're you know we're we're feeding a thousand people for brunch on a Saturday, yeah. and somebody makes a mistake, and I'm just like I click because you go, you revert. Yeah, and well, sometimes you, that happens, and that's what I mean. Like I mess up all the time. Well, you know, they the old line is, and I always apply it to cooks is um, the people. Not an old line. It's a truth. <laughs> the people most likely to become child abusers are people who were abused as children. Right. 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 Not across the board. A lot of those people become the most caring. They want to be the mm-hmm. ca- the opposite of how they right. were raised. Right. But but the people most likely to behave that way are people who were abused themselves because that's all they know. Right. 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 That's you. Yeah. Or that was I mean, you. It's just there are flashes of that yeah, in your life. All the unwinding of that and the unlearning of that. Yeah sometimes sneaks up and gets me the difference is now i'll go you know whoever that was directed at or whatever that interaction was uh-huh. is resolved before the end of the day a hundred percent like it. and i have no problem celebrating my own mistakes mm-hmm. i mean like celebrating my own mistakes yeah. that's interesting phrase i mean we're in a really interesting place especially at willow where we can afford to really sort of take joy in the mistakes that we made and what we're able to learn from them. And mm-hmm. how, like even the, the dialogue, like how do I do it better next time? Right. Like I have those conversations every day mm-hmm. with myself and others. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be able to do that is a like really incredible place to be. That's great. Yeah. You described the old behavior or mm-hmm. when you were as being one of the guys, right? Yeah. Do you, in your experience, is that behave like you work for Susan Spicer, right? Right. I'm not asking you to say anything right. terrible about Susan, but I you haven't have only worked for men, right? But right. in your experience, has that kind of behavior only been exhibited by male chefs? 99% of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No. That's not surprising. It's unsurprising to me. Correct. Yeah. 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 How long did it take you to get it? I mean, I forget these flashes that happens. How long do you think it took you to get it out of your system? Like to refresh your, um, rewire, reprogram yourself. I think it's a it's still an active process. Still. And there's still like even if it doesn't exhibit itself on the outside, like there's still this internal dialogue with me that's sort of like, you know, like sometimes I hear myself in my head and like say like, you know, blah blah, that server made that mistake or like, you know, this person is doing that and like I have to like be completely present in myself to hear that and be like none of that is true. Mm-hmm. And sort of correct my own uh, my own way of thinking and my own response to what people are doing. Yeah, like interesting. It is active in yeah. this moment. Yeah, yeah. It's um, it, it's applicable to so many parts of life, right? Like I have two kids, and I had a father who was a screamer. Mm-hmm. I really try not to be. Right. <laughs> but like, it's like honestly, I meditate in the morning, and it's one of the things I have to remind myself: like, right. don't let anything get the best of you right because it'll come out when you're exasperated it really does you know or when you're caught off guard mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. when something just comes out of left field yep. or everything comes out of left or everything comes out of left field or things come out of left and right field and down the and down the plate yep, exactly. yeah exactly. okay so let's talk about happier stuff what okay. is um what are some of your favorite what do you consider your signature if you if you use that term or if you have what what, what are you consider the things that you've cooked over you got a smile spreading across your no, face that you've it. made over the years that you think are really sort of um you know epitomize what you're about um, on the plate or that you just love personally more than the others I mean honestly my favorite dish that is in my history is the the uh, cookies and milk at Willie Jean. Really? Because it was it was an exercise for me after 15 years of fine dining to 
remember what simplicity looks like mm-hmm. and how like complex it can be. And the idea that I need to remember and learn how to put something on a plate that requires no effort from the guest to think about how it was done. Mm-hmm. Like I had been in a world where you sort of like showed all this technique. Yeah. Um, and it was obvious and, and tangible on a plate mm-hmm. for so long that mm-hmm. a chocolate chip cookie, you don't have to think about it. You can just enjoy it. Um, but now that, how much work went into the cookie? I made cookies every day for two and a half years to get the one that we now serve. Okay. At least once a day. I made mm-hmm. cookies for two and a half years. And tweaked along the way. And tweaked every time. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not a show-offy thing. No. But there's a lot of thought right. that went into right. it. Yeah. It is, to me, you know, and I learned in the process of having all these tasters and asking everybody, like, what's your favorite personality of a chocolate chip cookie? Mm-hmm. Like, people have very strong opinions of what a chocolate chip cookie should oh, be. Oh, for sure. Um, the size of the chocolate. Yeah, the size of the chocolate. Is it crispy? Is it chewy? Is it soft? Like, what is it? Do you serve it warm? Do you serve it at room right. temperature? Right. Yep. Um, so I set out to make a cookie that in some way encompassed everything about a chocolate chip cookie that people had talked to me about. Uh-huh. And it took two and a half years to figure out. Yeah. Well, we figured it out, and now it's just like, it's just a simple expression of joy. Yeah. So here's a question. Do you, you know, the the fine dining you talk about, Mm -hmm. the show-offy part of that, the you know, the I call it the degree of difficulty. Yeah. This is something I've been consumed with in my own head the last two weeks. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like, like the behavior that you described, do you feel like that imperative toward, you know, complication mm-hmm. toward pyrotechnics, right? right? Do you feel like that is also something that came to you through men that taught you or that uh, were in leadership positions in your life? Yeah, I think it comes from them. I also think it came from, you know, the rise of the Food Network and, and food mm. media in general and how, you know, these guys were, were the best. Mm-hmm. And if you wanted to be the best, you went and worked for them, whatever that meant. Right. Um, and I... I'm a competitive little shit, and I wanted to be the best. <laughs> right, even if you're not competing on the on right. in in your league. Right, I don't I mean wanted, your league in terms of talent. I mean yeah. in the right league. Exactly. Yeah, and I wanted to to be able to to show up and and hold my own against anyone. Yeah, and so I went and worked for the people that that yeah. would allow me to prove that to myself. So the reason I, I don't know, we just met, but I sense yeah. I can ask you this question and sure. this could maybe be an interesting conversation. Is this all right? Yeah. Okay. If you don't want to have it, tell okay. me and I'll edit out the, the question. I've been trying to work this. I've had this thought recently. It's a bunch of conversations I've had where I've kind of connected some dots, right? I believe that um, one of the reasons that women in the end, women chefs, are so often overlooked. Obviously, there's sexism, mm-hmm. chauvinism. That all exists, right? But I think there's something else that's even more elemental and subtle, and it's what I call degree of difficulty. Mm-hmm. And I believe you talked about your chocolate chip cookie, okay? That's not a show-offy thing. No. It's, not some, it's not a showstopper. It's not something that's, that's not going to win you an award probably, Right. But there's all this work that went into it, right? right? Now, um, I just sat recently with Kathy Wims. Do you know her? Mm-hmm. From mm-hmm. Portland. Yep. Six time, and awards, honestly, in general, I don't really, I know they're important, and I know there are patterns that need to be talked about. Right. But they're not pure. 
no award is pure. Right. There's so much politics and, you know, I mean, I don't know how many people win these awards that can't afford a publicist, you know, right. to be totally honest, right. you know. That's a real conversation. It's a real conversation. So, um, but she was, you know, six time regional James Beard nominee, okay? Now, what does Kathy do in her restaurant? Much like a lot of other women chefs, she does very down-the-line, traditional Italian food, mm -hmm. right? To the point where there's a dish that's been on her menu from day one, Marcella Hazan's, uh, I think it's tomato and butter sauce. It's a pasta, right? Now, Put that up against like, you know, what like somebody like, I don't want to name anybody, what like some, you know, avant-garde, modernist, right. whatever does. Which looks more which looks more impressive. Right. Exactly. Which reads more impressive, right? Right. But just like you spent, you know, two and a half years developing a chocolate chip cookie, yeah. people who are doing you know, that food takes a long time to to, to yeah. master. Yeah. There are there are these little am I making sense? Yeah, a hundred percent. And I think by and large, women feel less of a need to um, impose themselves on the food. Yeah. You know, there are so many women cooking traditional Italian food in this country. I sat in the same room last summer and interviewed Amy Brandwine from DC. You know, you look at somebody like Jody Williams here in New York. Um, it goes on and on and on and on and on. And I think, you know, there's very few women, I think, who, who even, like, operate in the, what we would right. call the avant-garde or modernist movement. Right. I don't, I don't, I just think it's less appealing. Yeah. You know? I agree with that 100%. I wrote yeah. a book about the Boku's door, mm -hmm. and everyone's like, oh, it's so sexist, you know, there's so few, I'm like, no, very few women have tried to be on yeah. the U.S. team. Like, right. they have to, like, go, like, almost recruit. Yeah. You know? Because, and women have said to me, look, it's hard enough being a, a woman chef. Like, I don't need to do that. Right. Right. Anyway, I'd love your. I'd love to know if this resonates with yeah. you. Yeah. Oh, I think it. It does a hundred percent. And having gone from one of those worlds to the other, um, you know, I was having a conversation the other day. The ability to do something so simply and not impose on the food and not put any ego in that or any any of myself other than like what it's supposed to be a standard and doing that consistently. Yeah over and over again is harder than any fine dining restaurant I've ever worked at. Like, because it's more based on, well, to go back to yep. what you talked about before, listening to the food or intuition yep. or, right? Yeah. Like that chocolate chip cookie has to be that good every time. Mm -hmm. And to do that consistent, like it's, it's really difficult. Yeah. It is harder to me to do simple and do it right and do it consistently mm -hmm. day in and day out than it is to, you know, dream up some whimsical, crazy-looking dessert. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, there was a restaurant called Take Root here in New York. Mm -hmm. uh, Elise Kornack was the chef. Okay. Uh, she yeah. and her wife, yeah. Anna, it was in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. They did 12 seatings a night, three nights a week, but it was just them. I mean, they yeah. literally didn't have a dishwasher. They put the garbage out themselves at the end right. of the night. They right. cleaned the, wiped, wiped the restaurant down. And, but I was telling a, a, a chef friend of mine, a guy, about this amazing ex meal I had there. It was just mm -hmm. amazing. And he goes, ah, 12 people, that's, that's not a restaurant, that's a dinner party. And I was like, well, what do you care how many, like if I'm sitting right. at my seat having a great meal, right. What does it matter? I don't care if the people are suffering, like right. in the back, right. you know? And actually, they were kind of suffering. Like, mm -hmm. they burnt out on it a yeah. little bit. Um, but it, it, you know, it, I thought that was a very male 
I don't think any woman would have said that to me. No, absolutely not. I mean, I know I'm talking in generalizations, but right. do you... Does, I, 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 this all makes sense. I don't sense. know any woman that would have said that. Yeah. yeah. But I think degree of difficulty. I think that right. is this thing well, I think that is really um, muddies the waters in terms of what is seen as... Not what's seen as good, right. but what's seen as great. Right. Right. And I, I am hopeful that the the awards and the media, all these things that are sort of shifting now and taking taking into account the bigger picture. Like, who is that chef in the full definition of chef? Mm-hmm. As a leader, as a community organizer, like, how do they treat people? How are they taking care of the people around them? Mm-hmm. Um, that, to me, is a natural evolution that women will be noticed because mm-hmm. women take care of their communities for the most part mm-hmm. in a way that I've not seen many men chefs mm-hmm. up until recently start doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. It's funny. We had Mary Sue Milliken on the show last oh, year, yeah. awesome. and we were talking about lead- – and I said, you know, if, if the chef world was not a – well, she put the words to it. I was trying to mm-hmm. ask this question, and she kind of used these words. You know, if it had been classically a matriarchy instead of a patriarchy, I said, how, how do you think it would have been different? And she said, well, the bottom line is your food would be more expensive. Yeah. Because people would have fewer shifts and there'd be more employees right. and, you know, like people would have more time off and, mm-hmm. and that all reflects in the price. A hundred percent. You know? A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. These are conversations you have. Yeah. yeah. Every day. Yeah. With myself and others. Yeah. yeah. Well, it was good meeting you. It was nice meeting you. Hope you enjoy the rest of your time in New York. Is it? Do you like coming to New York? I do. I love you it. You do. I love it. You don't yeah. hate it. No, I don't hate it. I, don't, I, I mean, five days is generally my max. So uh uh-huh. I mean, like you needed a little, a little more space and quiet. Yeah, a little, yeah. A little green area and, uh-huh. and, and my dog. But uh huh. What kind of dog? He's a mutt. Oh, He's nice. The best. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for your time. Of course. Thank, thank you. you. And that's our show for this week. Caitlin, thank you very much. Three weeks running. Wow. (laughs) Happy to be here. Do you enjoy... I don't even know. Do you enjoy this? I love it. (laughs) (laughs) That was deliberately unconvincing. (laughs) I would describe that as deliberately unconvincing. Oh, Andrew. All right. Uh, Kwame Anwachi, thank you for interviewing with me. Kelly Fields, thank you for interviewing with me. Uh... Jeet Paul, our engineer, thank you as always for splicing these things together. To the team at Heritage, thank you as always for your support. And to all of you out there in podcast land, thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of Andrew Talks to Chefs. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.